you can swear. I just don't. I feel like a Catholic school child who fears Zeus will fling him lightning down outside the church and that Jesus will blind me with his acid blood if I'm in the church, and I swear. So, not in front of the saints. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radio Free Golgotha. This is a, another very special episode, and especially a special episode, because we are joined by dear friend and colleague, Josh Sharp. Hi, Josh. How are you doing? Doing all right. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I am glad to be sitting down and talking about a whole host of things that we've got lined up to talk about. How are you doing, Jesse? Yes, I like long walks on the beach and small goatlings to bounce off of me at all moments, because that's my life right now. Less the walks on the beach and more the goatlings. So, yes, this is welcome to episode 27, 20 the 7th of RFG. We are celebrating the wonderfully well-known polemic holy days. I'll start off there. I'll reverse what the, because that's the well-known part. But in specifically following our calendar of the saints to pick an obscure feast that happens to fall during a time period we would love to to address some, discuss some, and have some salon on some topics. Croliana, 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 Croliana? Is it Pollyanna? Polly? I don't. Um, so I'm going to go back to the Catholic part, which I know, which is today is the feast of the Holy Martyrs of Ostia. There are many martyrs of Ostia, but these are the holy ones of April 10th. And we'll get to why that is a little bit right on course for us, but as far as hagiographic blur and major themes of imprisonment and the ocean and the dead and all these things going on. But uh, this feast day of the Holy Martyrs of Ostia, April 10th, also coincides with the third day of the writing of the Book of the Law. And Joshua Adam Sharp, our guest, is being brought in as the world's foremost expert on all things Crowley, against his will. Especially against that. Just put him on. Just painted a couple targets on him. Against the, the wider Thelemic community's will. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. But in alignment with the great will. We bring you the great beast's left horn and right nipple. I don't know where I'm going with that. Anyway, as far as our topics of the day, the Holy Martyrs of Ostia, feast day. Beautiful. Thank you. Our demon is none other than Iwas or Ivas, uh, which will the ascribed holy guardian angel, Satan on the shoulder of Crowley himself. Our herb for the day, I'm just going to, I'm British by association and sitting next to Al so many times. So herb is poppy. And uh, there's there's a there's a slight romantic nod towards a greater poppy culture, perhaps there. Topaz is the stone of the day. Our magic style of magic is channeling, which is could be episodes long on discussing that all those different things. The geometric figure is Puer, right? The boy, Good. the young warrior, the, yes. the, the brash young thing. <laughs> the tarot trump, I'm doing these from memory, that's why I'm s- slow. Uh, the tarot trump is the magician, or also known as the juggler. And our dead magician of the day is indeed Alistair Crowley. So mm-hmm. we will, if you are new to us, or we are new to you, when some recipro- reciprocity of newness, we will bounce around between those topics and promise to talk about none of them, or all of them, or in part, but not whole, and denying many other, wow, I'm not on my game today. (laughs) But, okay. Hi, Josh. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. This is really exciting. I'll put it out there that you're the first person other than Al that I've written a bio for. They're like, yeah, that looks great. And I was like, I think it was meant to be a joke, but cool. Yeah, sure. I I really try to, I I have this whole weird thing where I'm really more comfortable with people defining me as they 
see me than me doing that for myself. So call me what you will. Yeah. Cavalas are the worst. Yeah. It's (laughs) terrible. I I don't do them really. That's why I uh, don't really do anything normal in the the regular world. Uh, So yeah, I have OTO affiliation. So I, I started initiating, I think in around 2002. So I've been in now over 20 years. I've got 20 years there. I'm an aspirant to AA, obviously not Alcoholics Anonymous, if you know me. And of course, Cumbero. So work with the rest of you in this podcast quite often, and I'm very proud to do so. I mean, that's kind of my background. That I also play in a black metal band. Some of you might know me as Al Gaul from uh, Mehanet. So I think that covers it. Oh, and I own a botanica here in New Orleans, along with a couple of my house uh, botanica bakumba all right i was gonna be like you don't want to mention your business but that's fine flying under the radar flying under the yeah. radar yeah. yeah we'd love to to circle your back business and, is not my business apparently i would love to circle back and hear more about the awesome events that you've been doing at botanica Mokumba sooner at some point uh while we're sitting down and chatting it's always exciting to, to come down and uh and see you guys Kind of processing off of that, because the saints of the day are very Ocean of the Dead themed. This The Holy Martyrs of Ostia, April 10th, are a, it's a very bottom of the saints of the day list thing. Mm-hmm. And it's there's quite a few martyrs on this day. Many saints are martyrs. There's quite a few groupings of martyrs for this day. And there's many saints that are martyrs that are of Ostia or were killed at Ostia or were from Ostia. And in fact, the majority of the persecutions actually happen after the martyrs that we're talking about that kind of start the whole ball rolling of the martyrs, the martyrdoms of Ostia. Ostia mm. being the kind of coastal represent or coastal arm of Roman justice for some reason. They sent a lot of people to be imprisoned at Ostia, maybe for the sea air, because if you're persecuting nobles, there's actually a there was actually in the research for this, there was a great website that had the prisoner code as part of evidence for what this was, but the idea that you had to, where is it? Meanwhile, the man who has not produced in court shall not be put in manacles made of iron that cleave to the bones, but in looser chains, so there may be no torture, and yet the custody may remain secure. Uh, the incarcerated must suffer, not suffer darkness of an inner prison, but must be kept in good health by the enjoyment of light. And when night doubles the necessity for his guard, he shall be taken back to the vestibules of the prisons with, into healthful places. Mm-hmm. Granted, this code is a little bit after our martyrs, but mm-hmm. this was... Uh, in, in fact, it is probably a response to the quality of the prisons that our martyrs were kept in. But the later <laughs> martyrs of Ostia had a little bit nicer prescription of how they were kept. The martyrs of Ostia that we're talking about today have a very short storyline, which is that they were criminals that were in the prison. And this is legend, not necessarily fact, which is very true for many saints. This is mythic time here. But Pope St. Alexander I who's the sixth pope, and I have to remember myself for that because Sixtus is the seventh pope, but Alexander I was imprisoned in Ostia and he converted the criminals that were there in the cell with him or in the prison with him. In the cell is what I think in my brain that he's crammed into a little tiny thing. I don't know. I don't know the reality of this. And the archaeology of Ostia actually has been a great deal trying to find the prisons that saints were kept in. But these criminals were brought to the faith by Pope St. Alexander I. Then they were taken offshore in punishment on a boat. So they boarded a boat and then the boat was scuttled around 115 CE AD. So they are a a group of uncountable or both singular and plural or something. There's more than one. The group, the depictions folklore has them anywhere from like five to up to 50. And there's part of this, I think, is the blur with other martyrs that happen on this day. You also have the martyrs of Georgia, which is like 6,000 monks that were martyred in Georgia in the 1600s by a Muslim army. And then the martyrs at Carthage, who are about 50 saints, 
who were imprisoned in snakes and scorpions and then martyred because the snakes and scorpions didn't kill them. And that's a common theme with a lot of martyrdom, right? That you put somebody in something and they suffer. The first one doesn't take. Yeah. And so the we know the Carthage ones are 250, 100 and some odd years after our current martyrs of Osti that we're exploring today. In research of this, I also had to go down the, the Alexander the First rabbit hole, right? Because mm-hmm. if that's the person that's bringing them to the faith and making them martyrs, Okay, so I want to know more about that. And St. Alexander the First, Pope St. Alexander the First, is an interesting one because he's also, for all of the people out there that are, that they're, this is both a, a rub and a nod, perhaps, a rub nod, not rub, no, 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 that's something different. Holy water is said to have been introduced by St. Alexander the First. Yes. Uh, concept of holy water and mm-hmm. the custom of mixing wine with water in the sacramental, but that's felt to be here. It's just ascribed to him. They have no idea if it's true. Holy water might be a little bit more timeline based. The physics of it I read were that he introduced the use of of a holy water of sorts, which was A, with salt, and B, was specifically for the purification of Christian homes, of like chasing out evil influence of some kind. So it's more than just like who gets to make it and where it lives, like in the in the baptismal font or in little vials or what have you. And and A, the addition of salt to it, and B, the idea that it's it's specifically meant to be used like d- both domestically and also in the battle against evil forces. That's the part of it being with my not my rub is is the extent that a lot of what is called Catholic folk magic gets termed Catholic witchcraft. And it, this isn't witchcraft yet, but st- people quote unquote stealing holy water. It's not quite, you don't, you, holy water is there for the in addition to the fact that any Catholic can make holy water. That is thousands of year old tradition. But for the baptism of souls, actually any Catholic can baptize a soul in times of peril. You can, what is called pejoratively bush baptized. But for on the record, then you take the child to a priest when you can, but it is considered that the child will get into heaven through the water that you created, through the baptism that you did because you were fearful of a baby's soul. So a lot of midwives were baptizing long ago. So that part is an interesting thing and is oftentimes a citation by Protestants against the exclusivity of Catholics. But they're still also exclusive. I mean, why not have your cake and eat it too? So holy water there as a sacramental or something used in the home as towards towards driving out things or putting in the foundation. It's one of the few things that you can do, especially by laity. So going and getting holy water and dousing things in holy water. And like the St. Benedict medal, for instance, this is one of the common exorcism sacramentals that can be used by burying them in the foundations. That if they are blessed by a priest or you dunk them in holy water as a second bet, that they themselves will drive out demons from the foundation or put them in the walls of the houses you're making them and things like that. I always like a little bit of possibility of demonic house possession, but that's just <laughs> the other thing with Alexander is that he, it's dubious as to his death as to whether or not it was Hadrian Trajan. And was he decapitated? Um, there's a lot of myth because he has his own hagiographic blur with a martyr named Alexander, who's on that Nomentana, the road of many martyrs. And we also know that his jailer at a later place was St. Quirinus, Quirinus, that his daughter is also a saint, that he converted the jailer. So he's very good at converting people, apparently. Our (laughs) martyrs were probably a trial run for Quirinus and Balbina, who's the daughter. And there, I think Quirinus is April 30th, and his daughter Balbina is, when is she? The 31st of March? Like, she's just passed. The 30th or 31st of March. There's this whole thing of proximity to the Pope and the early foundations of the church, especially in the second century here, being like any proximity makes you a Christian, they, or and especially if you're killed for it. The early saints are always being put to death. This is what makes you a saint, right? Is, is martyrdom. The act of martyrdom is what makes you a saint. As, as started by Stephen and exemplified, of course, by Mr. Jesus. Yeah, and then by the third, mid-third century, 
we've got a Saint Aurea of Ostia as well, the, 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 the golden girl. And her myth also, or her hagiography also mirrors some of this. There's prisoners that are Christian and are made Christian. There's a, a prisoner named Censorinus uh, who has his chains loosened miraculously after he's comforted by her. And then a bunch of soldiers convert to Christianity as a result of seeing this saintly miracle and who are later beheaded. And he's given us 17 soldiers. And they are actually in the Acta. There's a, a bit of spurious rigor where they're all named, uh, which seems um, an advancement on the fact on, on the previous martyrs, which weren't, but were known as a group. Yeah, and, and, she, and of course, her imprisonment also was that she got to live on her estate. Yes, she and was crucially, of course, Aurea is depicted as being thrown into the sea with a millstone around her neck. So she's another drowned ocean of the dead saint. Yeah, and the church there is said to be quite beautiful. But this is, and as the patron saint of Ostia, Saint Aurea, there are several saints, again, of martyrs of Ostia. So, I mean, like, beyond going into the act, the idea of what martyrdom is, I think the thing that stands out to me about the Martyrs of Ostia, because, of course, this is a date-related thing, and that's why it was originally picked, but I do love this idea of the scuttled boat being the means of execution, um, mm-hmm. that it is un- we don't know the names of the specific first group of martyrs that were said to have been killed in 115. And mm-hmm. because of this, it brings up conceptions of you know, the Congolese conceptions of the Kalunga, which is has been talked about tangentially and sometimes as a subject on the show before. And there are many interpretations of it. There are many versions of how to go through this. If you're an English reader, you're going to be looking at Fukiao and at McGaffey for anthropological and both emic and etic views of what the Kalunga is. But as the friction layer created between the rubbing of the sphere of spirit and the sphere of matter, or sometimes created the world of matter itself referred to as Kalunga as the bride of Zambi Mpungu, the creator's god, that the Kalunga is also intrinsically both connected to fire and water and is viewed as any large body of water because of this, because of its liquid nature. So it is both a heat and a cooling at the same time, and that the ocean and large rivers are intrinsically connected to it, that if you're like in McGaffey, he's going to talk about crossing the river or having gone to the other side of the river as having crossed into the Kalunga, or in Fukiao of referring to the, the larger Kalunga, the horizon line, the spread of water towards the horizon, and the sun's journey and the star's journey, light's journey itself from the east into the west, and these the stars that we see that then are going in through the underworld, mirroring the journey of the human soul, and highlighting, interestingly, the four stations of the of the sun, right? The sunrise, noon, sunset, and midnight, which then are going, you're going to see flashes of then, if you're a, a Thelemite or a Crowley fan in, in Liba Resh, and kind of uh, stations of the day of import as to how things go. But the Kalunga itself being tied to, was it Ochoa in Society of the Dead? That chapter two goes into it pretty well of it being an, a force of ambient dead, the process by which uh, everything that has ever lived and everything that it ever will live is tied to the fluidity of matter. And that the Kalunga itself as a great ocean of the dead is a concept that pervades Afro-diasporic faiths hugely that this conception influences uh is there obviously in Palo because it is a Congolese descended tradition or the various uh Congolese Angola Bantu and the Kimbandas that are descended from them and the Umbandas that are descended from them in Brazil but then the proximity to this concept then influences other traditions other Afro-diasporic traditions that are uh in contact with these Congolese groups and because the Congolese were here enslaved first and brought over first unmasked especially the Mbundu 
uh, Congolese, that this kind of sets the stage for later developments of spirituality to be built and scaffolded upon. So we see this conception of the Kulunga and the ocean of the dead, the ocean of the, both of the ambient dead, and then this is the ocean by which the more responsive dead swim through to come to us. But this is a, a, a foundational concept of exploring spirituality, I think, here in the Western Hemisphere, and it's specifically Congolese in origin. And I can't help but be drenched in the curiosity of it myself in looking at a group of, of like the martyrs at Ostia who are boarding a boat. So no one, no one killed them by putting them on a boat and no one killed them by sinking a ship. But somehow all those actions make this unnameable group of people, they're only named as a group, then become one with the ocean. And then also provides a basis for later martyrs to be not filed away, but like to emerge from a, a deeper wake. Other things I was talking with Josh before we started, the other things I think with Ostia, in addition to Ostia, right, Ostia meaning host, right? Like thinking of the wafer of Christ being dripped in, dripped, dipped into the wine at mass. But the Ostia is, is a swear word in many Latinate languages, right? Because you're just referencing the host in an inappropriate manner. And the... I can't help but think of the, I think it's a coil song, the death of Pasolini, the murder me on the bloodstained coast of Ostia. They throw his bones over the white cliff of Dover. Yeah. And other nineties classics that will sting in your head. If you, you know, Josh, you had said you had, had found a, like an interesting coincidence with that. Uh, the only thing I was going to bring up. Yeah. There, there's a couple of stuff. We were talking about the martyrs in the, in the waters. Since we're, we're, we're talking a little bit later about Crowley's guardian angel in one of those books, Libra 65, the third chapter is the sort of attributed to water. And there's a tale of, a luscious devil of Italy. So again, we're in the same geographic area. Yes. Yeah, so the quote is basically, or I think earlier you were talking about the torture and all that. So there's this whole story of torture going on here and that she had been broken in pieces upon the wheel. The hands of the hangman have bound her unto it. The fountains of water have been loosed upon her. She has struggled with exceeding torment. She hath burst in sunder with the weight of the waters. She hath sunk into the awful sea. And he says, so am I, O Adonai, my Lord, and such are the waters of thine intolerable essence. And so he's relating this martyrdom of this particular woman, this devil of Italy, who's martyred on the wheel in the waters, of course, to himself before God, being burst by God as, as by a, a martyr burst by the waters. I think there's there's going to be some beautiful overlap with when someone's name is something like Oria and, and Oria, and she's her name being Chrissy, right, in Greek. And this idea that I think it was a, the funeral stelle that says like Chrissy lies here, the golden one lies here, and the kind of bringing that into an alchemical fold that it would flag anybody that was reading this of like whoa, 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 what is this golden person that's buried where, and what is this, and and what is the process by which we break matter to reorder it in the kind of alchemical perfection of things to make gold out of lead. For sure, yeah, I came across some um, crystalline mysteries with going over some notes of some discussions and is looking up for Topaz, if we want to pivot over there briefly around it as a fiery stone. So I was going through some notes and some conversations with Adley Nichols, who's, uh, if you're not familiar with his work, has been doing some fantastic uh, research comparing the Elucidarium Necromantium to earlier uh, Heptamerans and, and filling in a, an awful lot of blanks. Also been doing some great work on Sephiratsialis. So if we jump to talking Topaz, one of the the things that I, I found was that there is a overlap of what gets called chrysolitis or chrysolite, topaz, and uh, and certain sapphires, especially the ones called golden sapphires. So most 
lapidaries class topaz as having green forms, which is usually what we call peridot now, and red forms, which is usually what we call topaz now. So chrysolite from the Greek obviously means golden, as we we're saying, uh, and topaz is indeed sometimes called golden sapphire. And it turns up as the the tenth stone in the lapidary of the Sepharatsialis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually described as chrysolitis of a golden color and sparkling as fire. I got interested in it because its power is said to gather together devils and the winds and is virtuous to defend the place where it is from evil spirits and dead men, that they do not evil there. And the devils obey you, of course. And the figure is you're meant to cover a vulture into it. So the oldest known source of this work, according to Joseph H. Peterson, is a 13th century manuscript, the, the Trinum Magicum, uh, specifically the Veritum Sophorum Sigilla in there. And it gives you yeah, image of a vulture on chrysolite for curbing demons co- and calling them together, protecting a place and making demons obedient to the wearer. And I just was interested in how this topaz has so many qualities of being solary, for want of a better term, being clear, but also yellow, being fiery, and it's light that it absorbs and shines. And it's links to the moon as well, interestingly, that like it's said to follow the course of the moon. So when the moon is cloudy, the stone will be cloudy. When the moon is clear, the stone will be clear. Essos is said to be good for treating lunatics and those who have been disordered by the moon's influence and things like that. And then just in general, as a as a, as a a stone for fire rather than a stone of fire. It's said to quench fires and excessive heat. One of the tests of antiquity is to put it in boiling water and it will supposedly won't allow bubbling water to boil. It encourages all sorts of like combats a lot of choleric tendencies. It encourages bodily chasteness. Dioscorides says it assuages wrath and sorrow. It's also said to reduce lust very frequently. So there's these qualities of it being for too much fire. And then there's also a bunch of stuff about light as well. It's said to take on the um, the transparencies of other stones or to give other stones transparencies. It's said that in one of the semi-mythic places that it's originally from, that it's inhabited by troglodytes. And it's said that the troglodyte language is from where we get the term topaz in. And it's said that by a bunch of medieval lapidarists, at least, that means to look for. And there's all sorts of examples of it being a stone that you look into. So it doesn't explicitly, I haven't found any explicit sources for saying, oh, it's great for scrying or for doing what we call like evocatory scrying or for for calling spirits into. But it, there's all sorts of examples of like, uh, it's said that in the mornings with the light of dawn, that kings should behold it, that it gives them good remembrance. If they look at it, its light will aid their memory and give them good manners. It's said that it should be set in gold as another example of some gold mysteries. Isidore even says that the stone itself is a shining king and shines with all colors. It's said to comfort the men and beasts that look upon it as well. So this, these qualities of it being like an ennobling, uh, fiery light as well that interests me. I like that it has its own weird hagiographic blur with Peridot in that like etymologically we do th- it is said when we, I don't, I'm not a member of this we, but I, mm-hmm. by virtue of Libra Wikipedia, I am indeed, but that, that it gets its name from an island in the Red Sea, now called Zabargad, that was Topazios in Greek, and that it was never a source of Topaz, but was indeed a source of Peridot. I, I also was thinking about the, what you said of the troglodytes and like in the most common places for topaz as we know it this particular gemstone are going to be brazil is by far the number one source now but certain parts of of western russia pakistan india sri lanka nigeria and southern africa and southeast asia are heavy in the topaz areas also that it it increases like when you're using it for healing it is often felt to contain fire to the point where it will increase a fever and break a fever 
through this remedy. So it is one of those things uh, as a stone that cures both fire, um, the, the wetness of a cold and the kind of hot wetness of a fever that you can break through and bring balance back through the heat that is contained in topaz. Yeah, yeah. It's doing antipathy and sympathy at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's ennobling that which it rules and also combating that which it opposes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Said to be the second stone of Aaron's breastplate and is, again, the, the wealth of biblical archaeology around like what stones that the breastplate refers to in what order. The second one is, is also known as the golden stone. So there you have a, a divinatory component already just because of the way that was used and certainly said to be used and linked to the urim and thurim and yeah that's there was that's, even a light the story about the way the light would reflect off of the stone to give you an idea of which tribe was being spoken of mm. so there's kind of like a real direct divinatory component and identity component to different stones yeah. yeah yeah the breastplate's fascinating in those terms and especially how people have sought to construct and reconstruct it yeah that, that you've got an example of not just scrying in one stone, but potentially scrying in 12, which are also part of a table of things. But you can, yeah, along with which tribe you're talking about, you've got a 12-part taxonomy of everything, right? So yeah, you have another one of those. I'm trying to think of the term for like kinds of divination where where you put the whole set out and see how they are interacting with each other or which ones draw you more. It feels Mm. a little bit like bone throwing in the sense of all your pieces are or like a grand tableau where all of the cards are are facing you and you're trying to work out what they're saying together. You also have this sort of uh, uh, element where the lawman that you're wearing there, or the breastplate, aside from having different tribes, you, you of course have the sort of celestial associations and you're basically wearing something that is reflective of a sort of universal or rather like a, a cosmological image. The 12 parts of a 12-part cosmos are all represented. In theory, you can yeah. you can answer anything about that. It's a, a total ontological taxonomizing system. And it's interesting because you know to to tie it into some of the other stuff. Eventually, getting to the the great golden topaz that Crowley had set in his vermilion red cross. No premeditation there at all, of course. <laughs> <laughs> this, of course, was be worn as a lawman, but then also used as a divinatory tool. So we're not very much in the same way because. Throughout that text, you get the relationship of the rose and the cross is cosmos and chaos and that interaction. So, uh, again, so yeah, that's another good example, right? So, the cross isn't just Crowley's showstone topaz, isn't just a honk of topaz. It's uh, so like a Rosicrucian cross, it's got the 49 other little, yeah, 49 petals, right? Exactly, red cross, 49 petals, topaz in the middle. Every one of those petals has a path or a letter, or so like you have a complete image of the universe you know, a Kabbalistic image of the universe there that you're then staring into. And then you have the glimmer off of the, the topaz. Yeah, so that's very similar to Aaron's breastplate. Yeah. And also not dissimilar in terms, it puts me in mind, it's evocative of how certain of the angelic calls were received by Dee and Kelly in like the big download of 84, in that he's being shown tables and angels pointing at and signaling particular letters one at a time. So in this case, you've already got the letters on the thing. So it's also somewhere between kind of pop Ouija board version of a showstone as well, in that you've got the yeah, opportunity absolutely. to talking flash particular board in letters. case there's any like copyright issues with that. Sorry, uh, talking board, yes. <laughs> yeah. Connecting it to the historical showstone that you guys are talking about, right? So the context of that, as I understand it, is this is the Crowley and Newburgh going to build upon the D operations. Yeah, right? though first, there's actually two of those that happen in Mexico 
before he even knows Neuberg. But that was a, that's the part that's funny to me is for all of this and for all of the um, spelunking that can happen. I mean that in the gayest yeah. of metaphors that will be ascribed to his relationship with Newberg. And I celebrate that happily. Go team spelunking. But that there's no premeditation whatsoever, but he's inspired to suddenly build upon something he did almost a decade earlier and just happens to have this beautiful, gar- large topaz on the Vermilion cross that that brings things forward for him to do with, with Newberg. And yeah, yeah. This is Algiers 1909, right? By the time they're like in the yeah. desert. Yeah, and they, they basically walk. It's very far, actually, because they're in like Balsada. They get there like November 30th. I think like, you know, they go off all the way to like Biskra. I mean, they're going through like from Tunisia through to, to through Algeria in just the middle of nowhere for periods of time. There, there even comes a, a moment where when he's preparing for these, he's reciting a thousand and one times a day at each one kneeling after each recitation of that portion of the Quran and then continuing on. And he was told to do that more or less to prepare to receive the Aether. People sort of skip over all the, in the story, because like you were bringing up the spelunking, there's a moment, you know, a really special moment where he's like, wow, sexuality can be a gift, an offering to the gods, not necessarily this sort of uh, a shameful thing. And it's demanded in this case. And that's, that's a complex moment for him even though it's not like he hasn't done it before a million times but in the i concept of religion it becomes really important but for the majority of it that's not really what's going on i know people like to to you know homophobically giggle about it but like in the reality like uh it was a pretty straightforward religious experience up until this moment where sodomy becomes demanded as a part of it i don't mean to and even in my own like finding a metaphor around it is because gets every conversation about the their relationship and these workings gets clouded by it by a by some weird unworked out homophobia or stigma or something that's going on and i just remember forums in the i just had a birthday so i can acknowledge how old i am but (laughs) the 90s in the wee early internet days before such larger places for categorization. But the discussion of these things and, and the publications that were around, of, you're dealing with the wars between uh, Typhonia and OTO and other things that are going on about mentioning the sin of homosexuality and and what that is and it being something that's discussed, of course, in these workings and people kind of honing in on that and only that. And um, it, it again, becomes the whole thing of like, what's the gay agenda? And come, come, there's there's some, I, I generally like the KO'd answer to it of like more sodomy, more shit eating, more scat, like just figure out all your bad taboos and just indulge them and shut up already. I mean, there's a huge, that's a huge part of his entire everything. But, and I, actually I think it hasn't been, if you go to the confessions in the very early part of his life, before he even joins the Golden Dawn, you know, he's studying Russian, he's in St. Petersburg and he's working for the diplomatic service or he's, he's trying to, get there. He's like working on his fourth language and he becomes interested in the justification by sin. Now he's there roughly around the time that Rasputin has his conversion. And I think that's really interesting because they're within a year of one another in that portion of St. Petersburg, but Rasputin would have already been going on about this from the monastery. And what I have no way of knowing, at least maybe somebody does, I don't know how far that idea had gotten around that sin was a necessary test or something that one had to go through in order to be to achieve salvation. But this was like vexing Crowley as this idea that this was absolutely necessary and not as a, an excuse. If you, you read his journals, he's basically trying to say that he had fallen into this sort of Manichaean vision of Christianity. Like philosophically, he had become convinced, regardless of what theologians have, have said, that there's no way around a Monachaean interpretation. 
And the real question comes down to how are all of these things, you know, sort of the question of the problem of evil, how do these get, how does evil get resolved in the body of the one infinite God and justification of sin through sin becomes one of the answers. And so this plays into the mystical component later, whereas some, I think a lot of people want to see it as an excuse for libertinism, but at least he's got a lot of, a lot of pages of justification for it. If that's the case. And in that, just as a side tangent, because what the fuck are we here <laughs> for that? The justification for the kind of libertine atmosphere, I kind of end up feeling like half the time with, because Crowley's, Crowley's a hard one for me personally, because I mean, like it's, it's, I'm not affiliated with the same organizations you are. And I, it's more of a, of a, I'm going to dive in as I can and understand things as I can and move through things. But it feels like so much of any public movement where you're trying to have to, where even if let's, let's assume the noble cause, let's assume the noble effort here of trying to, or believing in what's being taught and having to sell it to the masses uh, that sometimes it feels like the libertine thing is um, the false unicorn horn. That, that might show you where the real unicorn horn is if you like if they can pull you in that brief in in the same way that's oh, I don't know if I'm making sense here but like the idea that like copious amounts of psychedelics will show you the same thing that hours of meditation discipline and med- meditation will show you but you don't necessarily have the same container and therefore you will lose sure. a lot of the things that you gain in psychedelic use that you could hold on to through meditation and building up the container for that which is in line with a lot of other principles too including like people that were very anti-Crowley, like Gurdjieff, right? And talking talk about building right. up the, and building up the body of light. And I think there's something that, that of this, that the forgetting that Crowley was at this, like even before the writing of the Book of the Law and even through this time period, which are so, what, five years apart or just a few short years apart, how much he's doing every year in this time period is dizzying. And yeah. how much he's committing to, as you said, performing a thousand and one recitals of, of like doing this to, to purify himself and bring vision to himself by studying Hinduism from being Hindu, by studying Islam from being fully as Muslim as he can to see through it. And which I understand there's also this kind of an, a right critique of the Orientalism and the colonization that goes through that. Of, of course, how is it, you know, you're dipping into something and not necessarily bring anything back to it. But in his vision, whatever that is, there is something really fascinating about the man that dedicates himself this hard to the spiritual discipline and is trying to bring back something back, anything that could be shared. Now, that's, of course, assuming that it is 100% or 120% mathematical impossibility, but that it is a noble cause, that it is, he believes everything he's saying. There are many people that don't believe that at all. No, I know there's a lot of people that don't. And I I, I can understand why. I just, you know, again, these self-tales can always, you know, more often than not divert from the way that other people see them. But I, I think the... A counter to that is, look, you've got enough body of information and you have enough people that were around at the time that while even if they have a falling out, you can see that they were convinced of the sincerity in the moment. Now, was there a lot of hypocrisy? Of course, there was a lot of do as I do as I say, not as I do behavior going on. But, you know, I was really shocked, like even preparing to to chat with you all. I went back through because I was really interested. Me and my buddy Jed have been arguing a lot about the sort of ontology of the reception of the law and IVOS and the idea of entities and how do we square this with all this other spiritual interests that we clearly have. And so I revisited, one of the main things I did to prepare for this was to revisit what led up to the reception of the law, not just to talk to y'all, but to, for myself, to be honestly, to be like, why would, why is this such a fascinating moment? And why would I believe, why, why even look into IVOS? Like what is, what's so interesting about that? I do think that there's some, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get talked about that is, it's dizzy, like you said, dizzying. It's hard to recount his time 
even before he joins the Golden Dawn, let alone once that portion of his magical journey begins. You just don't hear about it a lot. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think it shows someone who's like really struggling with sexuality, Christianity, and those sorts of things, but has a, a, a deep-seated religious need. And then it gets pretty extreme when it, there's a reaction to it. You know, it's a, a sort of an entheodromia where he turns to his opposite. And that's where you get some of the stranger stuff. Yeah. I don't even think him and Gurji were that far, that different in terms of disciplines and whatnot. They just, no, their I personalities think... were bound to horns to horns. Yes. And I think there's a, a an Eastern model of what an esoteric school should look like versus a Western post-Protestant, post-industrialization model looks like. Mm-hmm. And Gurdjieff's thought was there's never downtime. And so if you see people being indulgent and do it, then you are wasting time. Yeah. Um, yeah. The reflection doesn't have to happen after it happens during. And Gurdjieff was very strict on this <laughs> by many people's accounts, extremely abusive in this way, smacking you back to reality and you either like it or you don't, but there's different schools for different reasons. But Gurdjieff's yeah. main comment was that he was an evil man and that people should be buried. I think that is the exact quote, but I a footnoted in the inevitable quote unquote footnotes that sometimes happen, but that, that he just did not see proof of the work in Crowley himself that is the critique. And there, there are many people that have that critique. It also brings up the whole point of, is the messenger the same as the message? Is it right in that case of by the time he's squandered away his money, through various means, or spent it on these incredible pursuits that allowed this material to come forth, depending on which polar you would like, which (laughs) you would like to give, that, you know, desperately trying to get students in the end of his life and being in this kind of drug days, sure, where is the, where you could question, where is the work then? But things are, I still have the kind of very postmodern thing in my head of separating, that's a larger conversation, right? Separating artists from the art. I don't, if I find the book and know nothing about the person, I get something out of the book, then I get something out of the book. And context, of course, words have context, language has context, and that complicates once you do know the context, but it doesn't change your experience of what these things are. And I specifically with Crowley, like he very much was inspired by the relationship, speaking to previous episodes of Jibril to the prophet, peace be upon him, to that the relationship between Ivas and Crowley was what it was something he spoke to an affinity of. He liked that idea of it being labeled as such, or that he felt it. Yeah. And certainly this great, as is often talked about, like whether it's Freemasonry or various different occult movements of being like, okay, let's dip Western Christianity and Judeo-Christianity back in Levantine spirituality and Islam and heretical Christianity and bring it back and see where this goes. And it kind of has this perpetu- self-perpetuating engine that happens. And Gurdjieff himself is ultimately considered himself an esoteric Christian, even though he's where's the Christianity in Gurdjieffian philosophy, but he's espousing kind of a perennial philosophy that all things reflect this holy affirming, holy denying, holy resolution in that way. So anyway, before the Gurdjieff tangents get a little bit too much, and I am neither <laughs> I am neither good at Crowley or Gurdjieff, just a fan of my goats. Anyway, that said, the topaz itself, what is the revelations that happen with topaz, just to kind of tie it back to that? Because I, I do think the topaz and its inheritance of like fire scrying and being a word for fire itself in Sanskrit, or the light and the fiery stone that is of fire, but not for, um, for fire or for fire, but not of fire, depending on which culture is looking at it. What specifically happens with the workings there? Can you summarize that? Yeah, I mean, more or less, he's using the cross of the rose cross with the topaz in it and reciting the Anakian calls and whatnot while, you know, they find a, a very distant place in the desert to do that. And this becomes like his sort of focal point for the vision. But he makes a note, all right, when he's talking about 
things like the body of light or visionary elements, which this is what he says. He says the topaz played a part not unlike that of a looking glass in the case of Alice, meaning Alice in Wonderland. And uh, he said that he had learned not to trouble himself to travel to any particular place in his body of light because he realized that space was not a thing in itself, but merely a convenient category, one of many such by reference to which we can distinguish objects from one another. He's not, he's no longer doing this rising on the plane sort of thing. He doesn't think he needs to go to some sphere. You can, I think it's almost kind of like coordinate remote viewing where you more or less, you have no idea what you're supposed to see. You just see what is there. And somehow the suggestion in this case of the ritual of the call brings to, to mind the vision. What he, when, you, when you read the visions, it's very clear. This is like a DMT trip. He goes right through the machine elves and the whole world changes. So he's not describing like, I, sometimes within the vision, something will appear in the stone. Sometimes when he leaves the vision, there'll still be something in the stone. But the description seems to be a completely out-of-body experience in which he enters an entirely different realm. I would suspect this is because he's doing this in conjunction with meditations and whatnot. So when we talk about like, well, what do we mean by vision? And this comes to our discussion of channeling. I wanted to know his history of this because if you'll permit me, like when I, when I went back to, you know, what was he doing before the Golden Dawn? Because I think everyone assumes his methodology is straight out of the GD. And I, I really believe that's not true at all. He discusses developing clairaudience, clairvoyance, and clairsentience before he's in the GD. And I, I had to ask, like, where would he be doing this? Like, so if you look at his, the history of what his influences were, while he's having his Manichaean freak out, uh, and he decides that the devil is God and he's going to get a hold of de the devil, and he, you know, he's like, well, how do I do this? I need a technical manual. So he picks up Waits' book of Black Magic and Packs, and that's where he starts. He's really unimpressed with it. For, and in fact, he, he hates Grimoire Magic almost immediately in the way that it's petty, and he, feel, he feels it's puerile, it's bad, it's just bad Christians being naughty and doesn't have noble pursuits. He really likes the description of the sacred magic of a Brahma and the mage. And so he begins going that route. He hits up a wait and says, can you give me some other books, author? And he gets a cloud upon the sanctuary. So during this time, he's kind of going through grimoires and he is, he's practicing some of them still. And in his journal, there's all kinds of interesting more standard grimoire tradition evocations. So he's experienced with that. But there's other stuff going on around him at the time. Like I, he was a big fan of William James, who at the time, like right around this era, was working for the Psychical Research Society, uh, whose library was in Cambridge, which is, you know, where Crowley was going to school. So he would have had access to those works. And then at the, similarly, the while he was actually in college, there was a chemist running the Psychical Research Society at the time. They were publishing all sorts of shit on what we would call psychism and you know all kinds of paranormal, human excellence type stuff. So he would have been exposed to this uh, spiritism, which you know later he's going to say a lot of bad things about. But you have to wonder whether or not in that exposure he's not. I mean, where else is he develop, developing clairvoyance, clairaudience, and clairsentience from. Mm -hmm. So he's already getting these kinds of channeling techniques from somewhere other than just the Golden Dawn. So by the time he, you know, he's skiing and he meets Julian Baker, the alchemist, and he's bragging in front of a bunch of people about his alchemy knowledge that he'd been reading. And he meets a real alchemist who's, you know, maybe interested in him because he seems knowledgeable, but also maybe because he can tell the guy's a braggart and not doesn't really know what he's talking about. And Crowley says this himself, actually. But he tells the guy he's trying to get a hold of the secret sanctuary, the saints that he read about in the Cloud Upon the Sanctuary. 
that's how the Julian Baker puts him in touch with uh, Jones and the golden Dawn. And that, that portion of the story begins, but he's training in these other things. And so it, I think that's interesting just in terms of the different ways in which people do get visions. You know, we can ask, are we just staring at a stone and are we expecting the spirit to appear in the stone before us? Like, like on our iPhone, or are we expecting to have an out-of-body experience? Are we expecting to have it come upon us? And I think in the history of, you know, visionary or uh, uh, psychic experiences, there's a lot of different types. Yeah, no, I think that's a really worthy thing to talk about beyond arguments about whether or not you poked the spirit and it was evoked to completion to to physical manifestation. I think there are plenty of examples. I mean, uh, Jan Veenstra charts a shift across from at least 14th century Anglo-German uses of showstones as in some cases screens, but then also looking at the example of it being like a like an altarpiece, like a focal point about which a variety of, of angels are evoked that kind of hang around it rather than in it or out of it. Um, mm. So it absolutely makes me think of the, the operations of, of Gilbert and Davies recorded in, in the excellent book, The Art of Magic, where not only do they talk about sometimes seeing things in the stone, a thing shadowy in the stone, or even talk about the the the, the show stone actually like moving in some cases. They also record these yeah. rich visionary experiences that in some cases seem to be dreams. In some cases are them seeing themselves wandering around a, a, a landscape. In some cases are sent out into it and then come back with things. Yeah, no, I think this is absolutely worth talking about. We There's a wealth of ways that not just scrying as seeing, but also channeling as, as receiving something from the vision uh, seem to have been employed. Um, and yeah, uh, again, Crowley provides a fascinating set of points to jump off from about that. Yeah, I'm really glad you touched on that, Josh. It is still quite interesting that the entirety of how magic works is still based on Alkindi, right? Like, and and it's been interesting because there's been some recent exploration as to whether or not it was actually originating with Alkindi or not, but I don't really care because the theory is still the same as being talked about. And the idea of rays emanating from the stars going through the various spheres and, and the, you know, Homeric golden chain as it comes down and the, how things bounce off of each other, then modifying that in various cultural permutations and contexts of the hot gaze, like Topaz, because Topaz is famous for averting the evil eye, but Topaz is an extreme heat. So anything that's hot will avert the evil eye, but things that are cool also avert the evil eye. And like you're, it's different theories as to how things work, but the, the evil eye itself being a hot gaze, and this is one of the reasons that it's attributed to women more than men is because the heat of menstrual blood comes out through the eye and spot, you know, pierces things in that way. Certainly in the Italian forms and in the Southern European, yeah, where the gesture is to satisfy it in some way with the with the fika, right? Yeah. Um, well, yeah but also under, in that sense that evil eye is a distinctly Mediterranean thing that has then gone out and framed and colonized all other forms of gaze. Well, yes, no, precisely. That's what that's what it ends up being called. But we've got very different concepts, with well, slightly different concepts of overlooking across the kind of Anglo-Saxon sphere and similar things in other Northern European. And then by the time of the Renaissance, we get formalized into a conception of avoiding or venting uh, melancholy humors specifically. And that's where it starts to be overly cold and drying. So much of the magical training, as I understand it, in our in into the realms that we're talking about, is to never be completely passive, 
and to never be fully active, that there is there has to be some cultivation of both things going on at any moment. And 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 I'm definitely coming from this Kerjeffian lens of like his thing of like you always you should always be working. But how do you let your guard down and enjoy too is a thing. You can make that choice to be like, I am going to receive more than I am going to be active right now. That sometimes that's good too. But you remaining that one percent or whatever mathematical formula of your activity is also what saves possession priests from killing people, right? That the deity is trying to do something horrible or the spirit is doing something horrible in their body, and they can then round themselves back because they're also being passive to the active of the spirit. And if it becomes at a tipping point where something is bad, then you become active and the spirit must become passive. That this shift is something that is in part of our training as magicians, sorcerers, witches, and otherwise. Maybe not witches because it's more it's less training and more ecstatic union with the divine, but I'm biased. Kill everyone, rip off their heads and just be drunk. But this the conceptions there then of how one scries and what that means. That if you were too actively searching for something, then you will not be you will miss what you might need to be passive to. And that if you are too passive in your searching, then you will miss what you might need to be active to. And so there must be a right-hand, left-hand utility here by metaphor, not by perhaps by literalism. Who the fuck knows anymore? But that, that you have to have both that you must have hard and soft focus, that there are whole manuals of looking into the crystal ball, right? And clouds moving from right to left, from left to right, from up to down and down to up, and where things appear and which quadrant of it. And you can break that sphere into so many longitudes and latitudes and map things out very strongly. Or you might, for instance, project yourself into the middle of the crystal and the topaz, for instance, in its hue, provides a prismatic light where your own body of light then shoots out your own rays to then prismatically call to everything that you're trying to have come. And it's interpreted through the medium of the stone. So you want to make sure that your showstone is of certain qualities in order to bring certain filtered messages to you, that the messages you might receive with an obsidian are might in fact be different than clear crystal or you're the black screen of your iPhone or topaz. But those are all theories as to why something works. But there's still this idea of you know shooting daggers, right? It's still this kind of Alkindi stellar rays thing permutating everything. But what I'm curious about is still this activity and this passivity that must be cultivated within within Jechi. It's going to be considered like a double-headed arrow, which is building off of many people's philosophies there, partially Gurdjieffian, partially otherwise. But the, it cannot be totally, I seek the thing in the stone because the stone might be seeking something in you by our ontology of magic. It is not, I say that, breaking away from just the pure sorceress will of it, like the, that the human is the center point of the universe, but the human is the center point of the universe as is every other thing. But this, that meeting and contestation of activity and passivity really interests me. I I think that's completely in keeping with the sort of visionary work that Crowley would have put forward, because I can tell just from my, my, my training in that there, there absolutely is a a passive and and an active element. When you, whether say you're taking a particular symbol there, there may be certain active sort of visionary ways in which you anchor your relationship to the symbol. So some people like to memorize it visually and then pass through it or whatever. And then there comes the passive element of waiting for it to visually speak to some degree, but then you may need to stimulate it. There needs to be a sort of relationship. Like I can still in a vision, turn my head, turn around and follow through on what's happening, especially if I'm in a, a scene, like a landscape or something. And I, there is a level of which I can direct what's going on. But if I'm just directing, you run the risk of it becoming just like active imagination rather than, I think, when you're allowing the passive side of the brain, or even if it is brain, who knows, passive side of mind to 
present, then you, you tend to get more unique. I don't know. I've had more, I guess, lack of a better term, objective results from allowing the passive side to generate and then actively interacting with it when I need it to become more intelligible. And so there's a kind of a dance between those two things. And this, I think you can see reflected in the way, and if you look at like Libra O or Libra E and the practices in there, you're going to be engaging both passive and active elements of the self in those in that working. If you look at what Crowley himself was training at for all of this and what he continued, and he's doing these concentration exercises with Eckenstein, uh, his mountain climbing buddy in Mexico, who really wanted him to drop magic. And this comes out of a pretty fascinating tale that I don't know if many, but so at one point he goes to Ceylon with Alan Bennett, who's about to take yellow, the saffron robe. He's sort of leaving his Shavite background and becoming increasingly Buddhist in his outlook on the world. Crowley goes and uh, 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 trains with him for a long period of time. I should have written down what the exact amount was, but it was for quite some time. And, you know, they're, they're working together on, you know, asana, pranayama, pranayahara, dhyana, dharana. These are the things that, and he attains a pretty significant amount of this as is tested by Bennett and Bennett's own teachers. And you think he gets the dhyana on Bhavani and he has this dhyana with Bhavani. It, it pretty much, she says, it's as if years of meditation, of yoga and magic that he had been practicing were completely extinguished in this dhyana. Like it all blew into this one great moment that he had. And he entered a spiritual dry period for some time after that. So that when he gets to Mexico, almost on like a vacay, and Eckenstein arrives to go mountain climbing, Eckenstein tells him, quit magic. Just stop it with all this superstitious shit, which he doesn't really enjoy, Eckenstein anyway. And he says, learn to concentrate your mind. And he gives him these really mathematical puzzles and they go on and on about the types of sort of internal mathematics that they do, mathematics games to focus the mind. And they're doing them in conjunction with sort of dangerous mountain climbing to really heighten mental acuity. But similar, if you're doing like asana and pranayama, I mean, you're relatively, your body is in a mix of active, passive, but you're sort of silent in that moment. You might call that passive. I mean, there's really a juxtaposition at all levels of those two uh, states, even in the asana, right? You're not perfectly slack. You're not super tense. You're somewhere in this sort of brace, but panther ready to pounce. Oh, energy. for sure. The observation of activity and passivity is what makes activity and passivity be more than just you be passive, quite honestly, or because you can be passive to your own activity. <laughs> yeah. you, you can be high on control and you are not fully present, but the, all yeah. of ultimately right that's i think you're right on point like but that's what i'm saying our training in the magical world is trying to develop some understanding of of this relationship to ourself which changes in the fractions of a second in, in terms of his visions and vision of the voice we definitely have him noting that he would have a be in trance and that you know sometimes between a sentence or two that he's reading out to the scribe many minutes would pass before he would say another thing as he's sort of in the, the space. And I think anyone who's done these sorts of uh, visionary exercises sometimes will note long periods of gathering your, you know, what exactly is happening to you before you're ready to describe it. And it can be difficult for a record to be trying to speak out what you're, I mean, for me, one of my biggest problems isn't not being able to see stuff. It's being able to, it's so much happens to me at once that I, I have trouble communicating it to any record. Even if I had a, sometimes I'll use a, 
like a voice recorder for the vision. And I just, I just, it's impossible. I can't get out every detail. I could tell you like the smallest parts of the rug and there's just, it's, I don't know. You have to discriminate. And this is an active component between what is relevant. What is probably the quantum foam of the vision just you have to pass over. So. Well, the piece here that um, might fill in some of that or keep this discussion going in a way that, that links us back to our purported uh, uh, topics is the idea that he's scrying ethers, right? That, that there's a particular cosmology at work, maybe even sure. some sense of, a, and, and sometimes ethers are talked about in terms of like this infrastructure of the Empyrean or of like levels of the astral. I think it's worth talking about that just a little bit because this is the other Do piece, it. right? This is the it not just happening in your head or in your soul or in your heart or in your controllable sphere of influence. There's a, the, we've already talked about like how the visions are being received and how the body needs to be an instrument for that and the, the active and passive attentions, awarenesses and achievements of, of the operator, of the seer, of the hearer. But I yeah, would be very curious about your thoughts around not just how Enochian is it, but also like what you think Crowley is claiming to do, whether he is ascending through these ethers or whether he, because his route is not direct right it's not linear always there's a there's a fair amount of back and forth and i'd love to hear you talk more about that this is one of those controversies that i really wanted to talk about because in modern philema and you know you know talk to a variety of people it you know depending on when you came up there's more or less vogue sort of psychological model or you know whatever like this is a sort of inner space or whatever personally my reading of crowley rejects that entirely in as much as we if and only if what we mean by psychological is just random internalization internal experiences so early on again before he joins the golden dawn and i was telling you he was working on a variety of of, of ceremonial experiments he's there with a gerald kelly and this dude gerald kelly i can't remember his other it's like evil or back or something like that and he gives a story of them attempting magic Okay, they're going to do an ev- evocation. And at one point, they put their finger outside the circle and they pretty much give up on magic because they didn't die immediately when, that, when they did that. So they're like, this is an objective. Who cares? And Crowley is like, man, maybe there's something up with you and you're just not any good at this. And maybe I am good at this. So I'm going to give it a shot. And he goes off to evoke these undines and he goes to the beach because he wants to be close to the physical. He thinks it's important that if he's going to talk to undines be near the ocean and the foam of the ocean. And he says, he literally expects these undines to appear in the foam of the ocean. Like physically, this is the romantic in him wants to see these entities. And he kind of tells this story where he's lighting a giant fire within the circle and he's doing all the prayers uh, and, you know, incantations. But the only undine that shows up is a police officer in the blue outfit. But then he kind of doesn't abandon this. He almost... It's like food for thought about your assumptions of, and he does this throughout all of his writing, the idea of the in and the out, like subject object. He's far beyond that ontologically. Like he, in his earliest writings, he attacks this as a primary philosophical conception that there, we need to not take for granted. So I think to him, this idea of, is this, just a, an imagination or is there a real spirits? That's a naive and beginner, like a sort of amateur question of philosophy. And, and so even in the beginning of magic and theory and practice, he basically wants you to read his essay, Bereshith, which is an essay on ontology. 
And he's going to go through these like sort of re- the religious orientations of the world with regards to God and whether or not God is, you know, a gaseous vertebrate, like a personage. He kind of breaks it up into like monism. In magical theory of practice, he breaks it up into nihilism, monism, and dualism. And I think in the Bereshith, he has it as like, I'd have to look up Bereshith, whatever. He gives a similar reflection, three, three, three outlooks. And he's really interested in Vedantic thinking, the way that the Buddha handles you know, and responds to this. And he juxtaposes that to conceptions of the Christian deity or sort of monotheism and philosophies around that directly has bearing on the way that he starts to think about, could the policeman not have been the spirit? Like, I think this is in the magical record of the B666. So it's like John Simmons and Grant's annotated version of some of his diaries. And he asks, is Ivos a separate being? And and, and, in this, when it comes to the reality of Ivos and then later the Anakian visions, okay, because these are all very deeply related. He, so he's asked, I think this is in the magical record of the B666. So it's sort of like John Simmons and Grant's annotated version of some of his diaries. Yeah. And he asks, you know, is Ivos a separate being? At first, you get the, you know, the materialists getting all excited when he says, I'm bound to answer no. But he goes on to say, I must explain that such no is the answer to the question of any name soever. No difference between you and him. And a brick? He says, no, none. But then he then kind of like affirms the differences between the personages of the Trinity and says that it's easier to think so of Ivos Ivos than a brick. And he brings up the fourth formless state, Turiya, you know, where waking, dreaming, and sleep all merge as one conscious state. And he's trying to get at this point in there that from his mystical perspective, sure, there's no difference between the inner and the outer. There's no difference between... Your neighbor, your neighbor is no more real than Ivos is real. And Ivos is no less real than your neighbor. They're all experiences that you're having or divinity is having. That wall has to be broken down in order for him to answer to what he feels is truthful. But he does very much mean that these things are as objective and as, as real as any other thing that you might call that. It's just they're of different categories of being. And in, in magic and theory and practice, he's at great pains and he gives a lot of mathematical examples, like say, for example, the square root of negative one or the, you know, the root of, you know, whatever. And he's trying to say it's, it's, it's not so much that these don't represent something real in the world. It's just that the terminology that we're using and the denotation under certain conditions make no rational sense. Like what, you know, the square root of negative one doesn't make a, a rational sense that you can give a object to necessarily, but without it, your understanding of the universe collapses. It's necessary for you mathematically to have that concept. So he starts to refer this to spirits and beings and other human beings in exactly the same way. And how you end up categorizing them is important, but you know he really wants to leave that to you to discover. You know He wants to leave the ultimate ontology of the universe as something that you're free to debate rather than to create a faith system where he demands an ontology. Now that doesn't mean that he doesn't put one forth, but, and he does, but I think that's important that he's just a lot of the times where he's willing to play around with the nature of these things. It's the philosopher in him, but he, without a doubt, repeatedly in the same text in, in both the book I'm talking about here, the record, as well as in magic and theory and practice talks about Ivos as a disincarnate intelligence. And he goes to great pains after talking about astral visions and all this other stuff. And you know, the imagination, 
to say that there is a way you can figure out whether something has a kind of objective existence. And he gives a couple ways in which we try to look at what would we require of that. You require of a spirit to go, this isn't just me having a, a passionate and energized enthusiasm movement. And so he gives a, a couple of factors. And he believes that the Book of the Law satisfies those and that Ivos is a disincarnate entity and one that shows up in these visions that we're talking about through the Calvary Cross. He shows up in the eighth aether and speaks. So yeah, shows up as a pyramid of light, right? And yes, a pyramid of light. It's there's another way. It's so crazy because he shows up as a pyramid of light, but he's also there's a, there's some really important when he talks about a holy guardian angel. Like what like what do we mean by a guardian angel? Like the quote that people give the materialists and the psychologists of the Lima that don't want you to believe in anything that they might consider supernaturalism or whatever are always keen to point out some of his comments in the equinox about how he chose the term holy guardian angel because it was so ridiculous that you know even a child would know like a fairy tale or something along those lines but i don't given all his other discussions on it i think what he means by that is don't be reductive when i say holy guardian angel don't imagine to yourself that you immediately know exactly what i mean ontologically about what an angel might be you have to take this further not that it's a stupid idea and it's actually just your jungian's true self or whatever you you know whatever your your you know it's not just the self uh, in the in the in a sort of psychological sense, it's something much much larger, and uh, in fact, with Ivos, who he says is his holy guardian angel, he describes it as a being, as was the genius of Plotinus, very god of very god. I think it's kind of interesting because in orthodoxy, you know, very god of very god is one way of saying as the father is the true god, so is the son, and it's a way of being able to describe how a partial, like an angel or a message or an experience can nevertheless contain God the all. So the angel, the holy guardian angel is sort of a messenger of God, but is itself Adonai, is itself God for you in this way? As just like how people talk about Jesus as sort of like the personal Lord, is clearly a man, is a unit of the universe, and yet is God itself. That same mystery is present in the angel. So I don't think there's any easy answer to the nature of these things. You talk about the Anakian Aethers. Are they the Mundi of a place? Like when you look at Al, you'll know this better than I, but they're in, in the Anakian system, you have the seals the that rule over of the earth. Yes. Repeat that, that Al, like, it was hard to understand. Yeah, we, we, sorry, go on. We're partly talking about the seals of the earth around the 91 parts of the earth. So you have something like that where you might be tempted to look at that as like just an entity that rule, like authoritatively rules the political direction of a nation. But you might describe it as the spirit of the place itself too, right? Could you, the question comes, could you have a vision of the sigil of Algeria, that you know, the angel of Algeria, as if not only it has a, a directional power over Algeria, but it is itself a being that one could go in in the way like a bacteria could enter your body. Because I feel like that's almost like how he's dealing with the angels of the airs. He's entering them but they're still angels. So it's not just like something that appears in front of him and yaps at him. He's within it. And it's taking itself apart and using this phantasmagoria to unveil itself. I mean, going back to even the concept of a showstone, right? That, that as far as Angelos and what this means, that we're still talking about messenger, whether it's the body of the messenger itself or the message that it contains, which can be conflated and we've already talked discussed but the idea that like angelos of, of being the showstone between you and the aether of whatever that is it's still going to be and if al you just touched on this in a couple episodes ago 
about this is one of the reasons that you should take everything that you receive in a vision as truth, as well as everything everybody else has received in a vision as truth. <laughs> that there are many things that would not just to look for like this underlying philosophy that that joins all things. And one of the things that I think that is interesting, of course, focusing on ontology, because it really shifts magical thought if you're going to shift anything from epistemology to ontology, because ontology invites debate. Ontology has a sense of being, which is by its nature. And therefore, being is different from being... (laughs) How can you describe it without defining it? Fuck me. Is different (laughs) from calcification of thought into something transactable and ultimately in our culture, heavily transactable through through commodity, that knowledge becomes something that is, you know, contained in lists and books and is is a one-way reception that the, you know, that somehow the ancient wisdom flows through the text you read and now you're the end all, you're the inheritor, you're the 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 supreme end of evolution. But when you're engaging with that knowledge as a relationship, which ontology starts to provoke at, it's a very different thing. Whether it's topaz or any of these things, we are ultimately treating all of this material, all of our experience as angels delivering a message, or at least you have the potential to to engage with them in this way, which speaks to many things with Dion Fortune's like, you know, a true initiate can serve at any altar or, uh, you know, whether it comes down to just get some fucking use out of your life. And if you don't like your certain circumstances and you can't change them, you can at least observe and figure out what the fuck you can learn from it. Cause like, otherwise it's really unbearable. And then, then you've already changed the activity and the passivity. Um, you are no longer just passive to what is being active in your life. And this is not to victim blame. It's quite the opposite that sometimes all you can do in tragedy when it's happening is at least actively witness it because just going, being overwhelmed by it, which is a perfectly valid response, especially as a trauma response is something, but the more that you can actively witness it, you are now not allowing it to be completely active in your life, which can allow for the onion layer of proximity. That's always talked about, whether it's, you know, in sleep paralysis, they'll be like, tell your pinky to move. And if your pinky can move, then you might be able to move your ring finger and your pinky. You might be able to move your hand in that type of way that there, there is something yeah. across the board that the layers of perception here are related to the doors and Jim Morrison. That was my TED talk and really bad <laughs> at the end. But yeah, so I think topaz or in this case poppy is an interesting one because it complicates crowley especially with dealing with opium and heroin sure and there are critiques perhaps myself in my teens and 20s but does crowley's poetry really make sense if you've never done had the milk of the poppy i don't know it's it is a certainly there there was uh i think that comes out of like the kind of chaos descriptions to certain magicians and they're aligning them to their drugs of choice and seeing how the spirituality kind of parallels that uh, well, you're going to have a hard time with him because when it comes to, it, how many you know, he's not William Burroughs. Yes. Like Burroughs is hitting the poppy all the time. Crowley is doing cocaine and mescaline and name a drug, ether. I mean, he's like all over the map with the drugs. Absolutely. Uh, no, the good call. It's a, a, it was the meth-induced description of, of your poppy high, of your heroin high, as to, you know, so many words. So many words. So many beautiful words. Just because, well, I'm sure, well, that, and this is one of the great things about having you with us is that it's, we can cycle back in and out of Crowley the whole time and talk sure. about something. poppy as, as, as an herb is a papaver somniferum specifically. There are many things called poppy. This plant is so interesting because of its seduction, right? Because of its connotation and use as medicine and as drug, which I don't know if there's a difference between those two, but one has a higher connotation of dosage and reparative work rather than recreational or perhaps at least not reparative, if if not outright destructive. But the mythology associated with the poppy, at least as far as Greek, which is a lovely coloring there, is that in the abduction of Persephone, 
being abducted by Hades that Morpheus gave Poppy to Demeter to ease her grief and suffering. And so Poppy is a symbol of both the abduction of the goddess of flowers, as well as the mourning of the mother who does not have her and that it, it eases grief. It therefore becomes associated in permutation in, in later expanses of people going building upon this with the missing of family members or specifically people who may be dead, but you're not sure. So mm. soldiers or soldiers who are AWOL. And indeed the poppy becomes the flower of fallen soldiers specifically, that it is also said to spring up from the blood of the soldier who thinks he's defending that he's on the side of the right. It's not mm. the assassin. It's not the terror. It's not people like trying to cause destruction. It is the blood that is spilled thinking he is trying to do good. And that is rewarded with the bloom of the red poppy. And mm. so there's, there's something intrinsically, right? It, it like tinges the, the sentimentality of that just a little bit more than perhaps if it was just soldiers who die in battle become that. But like a soldier is usually thinking they're fighting on the side of something good or that mm. it, it shows the intrinsic relationship. Again, I think I listened to the audiobook of Karen Armstrong's book after I read it at least twice a year. There's, it's good for everyone to read Fields of Blood or listen to it or however your reading is experienced. But the, the intrinsic relationship of politics and religion is not what people think it is, but also that it is they are in, inextricably intertwined. That religion does exist to to excuse the state of, of its shit. That's why religion was or organized religion is created. And that there is no difference between those two. The political scheme and the religious scheme are always intertwined. And that part of the great experiment and considered fallacy by many is that you're going to try and take away, you're going to have separation of church and state, but all of your decisions of the state are still based upon a philosophy that is based upon a predominant religion. And so if you come at something that's completely different from your religious beliefs, then you're going to say, that doesn't make sense. Why do we have to talk in this way? Why do we have to air our grievances in this way? Like those are still culturally bound. And that's why it gets confusing. But anyway, other digressions. So I think the poppy itself and its relationship to the Demeter, Persephone, Hades, like triangle of, 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 of things there as a gift of the God of dream, its relationship to, to the output of all of the known, the more romantic sides of, of opium and heroin and uh, eventually the opioids and the quote unquote hillbilly heroines of our modern day and this intrinsic numbing that it does, its role in trauma, in subsiding the traumatic body in not allowing to give or to allow the body possibly time to repair both from pain or from emotional trauma or and or both. But the medicine itself can then be something that is addicted and you become poppy eyed, right? Like you, you now give over to a world of numbness if the work is not done. And it speaks, I think, heavily to, I think it was Vanessa Sinclair. We were talking and just she was reminding a group of people about the original point of psychotropics as far as used in, in, in the soul of psychology, that the goal was never to put something on someone unless it's a chemical dependence uh, you know, or lack of making it in the body that you're trying to replace. But the idea, and I'm hopefully not misquoting her here, but the idea that you're on something so that you can then allow yourself to do the actual therapeutic work of healing your own soul through whatever those means are. But that over-dependence upon the thing that allows you to do that is kind of like saying, well, I have a cast on, so now I can go do whatever I want because my body is back to normal. It's not back to normal yet. The cast is there to support you for a certain amount of time so that your body can heal. And if it's a physical thing, 
then that's one thing. If it's an emotional thing, that's something completely different. So I think the poppy invites a whole exploration into what is healing itself. Does The doctor doesn't heal. The doctor, usually a surgeon, creates horrible traumas on the body. Then the body has to figure out how to heal. And the doctor has set the dominoes in order so that maybe you'll heal correctly. You'll heal towards a better balanced state. So ultimately, healing is always done by the patient. And this process of what that is, of being, of giving over to grief and sadness and pulling the world with you into, which, you know, all of us are drama queens and we're going to be pulling this kind of Demeter shift of my daughter is gone and I'm going to destroy the whole world in grief or in anger, depending on which version of the myth here is being told, which is part of the beauty of that mythic Angelos, right? Like you can retell it according to whatever lens you want, according to your agenda, but that it is true and not true at the same time. But anyway, I love Poppy because of that. I think it invites us to understand our own depths of what we might be ignoring and or in the kind of perhapian just to spin it back there, because we're talking about Crowley, and I think there's something interesting about putting these two in the same episode for the fuck of it, <laughs> of you are given what, you're, what you need to do your work. So your life circumstances, it's not about, oh, you deserve this, but what you observe as your life circumstances is still filtered through your own lens and therefore has a direct relationship with what you need to work on. And this relationship of, again, not to victim blame, because that's where we get to like bad things happen for no reason sometimes that and good things happen to shitty people. So it is not, yeah. that's a whole other exploration, but that on the average day to day container that we should, we can look at our experiences through the perhaps a poppy-like lens of what is it that I'm meant to be working on here? The, the, the grief, her grief was burying Demeter and all agriculture before that wasn't even needed. She was killing everything and she is a goddess that bestows life and in her grief. So her grief was already killing things. And that's a relationship there to examine what can soften that so that we can then talk. What can we do yeah. to allow for a playing ground or even in the, in the, in the kind of Eleusinian extension of it, um, if I was going to compare it to like the Tradcraft parables and things of like, you need to clear a field before you plant in it. You need to know what it's made of. You need to know if the soil is going to bear fruit before you start planting the seeds of initiations, traditions, and otherwise. So one of the hardest things in, in, way, in engaging a candidate is you have to know them for a little bit of time and they have to do some work clearing their field. Because if they're, you're going to say like this grows in this manner in this way, just by this extremely extended metaphor now, like maybe that tree does not grow in that type of soil on top of a rock. And we're going back to biblical parables here of like mustard seed on and, and or stone, you know, seed on the stone, seed on the sand type of thing, house built on those things. So it, it, yeah, there's some lovely, I, I guess this is where Poppy is making me go. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say there's a lot of connection between all of the subjects here with regards to Poppy, clairvoyance, vision. And martyrdom, because it, you know, I guess what it kind of makes me think of is the visions of the martyrs under torture and poppy visions. And similarly, workers, or not workers, like runner's high, like we're talking about like endogenous morphine, right? That yeah. is released upon like ex either extreme pain or like you said, the surgeon's trauma. Even before they inject you, your body is trying to maintain balance so that you can go on and not overwhelm you with the signals it's sending you of trauma. You know, it's telling you you're being traumatized, but it also needs to be like, okay, I get, I get it. Let's dial it back a little bit. And you get your endogenous morphines, but under that you have visions. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the dreams and the visions of, of morphine and, and, and heroin and whatnot are legendary. And so I think all of that ties those subjects directly together. 
And in some ways, it's probably what, you know, Poppy sometimes gets, you know, the lunar attribution because of its visionary capabilities, the ability for you to just suddenly float off into aether, as it were. Yeah, in the language of the flowers, by the time we get to like Victorian floriography, uh, poppies are typically said to symbolize eternal sleep, as well as oblivion and imagination. And there we've got the kind of two sides of the to the double-edged sword, right? Because we've got all the Hypnos stuff, right? Hypnos carrying a poppy stalk or a horn filled with poppy juice. We've got Morpheus, god of dreams, lending his name to morphine. But we've also got Thanatos, uh, who's also said to, uh, was often depicted wearing a crown of poppies as well. And so we have this, the soothing of the pain that allows for a vision out of that pain and a vision of a life out of that thing, of the imagination to to see a way out, and, but also the eternal sleep, the darkness of oblivion of being removed from either the sensate body or the consequences of our actions or whatever it is. Like we get the, tis, tis the dosage that makes it so, right? Between and medicine once again here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting looking at some of the old English folklore around the poppy and how it is, I wouldn't even say revered, kind of respected slash feared. There's all sorts of ideas around overly staring into the center of poppies is said to cause blindness sometimes, or if they're put near the eyes, it's said to cause blindness. It's said if you handle them roughly, it can produce warts. And there's just this general sense of being careful with them. Sometimes it's said that if you harvest them, you mustn't let any of the petals fall off them for various reasons, as well as obviously the folklore still attests to using it for things like insomnia or other kinds of helping people rest after they've been put through an awful lot of pain. So there's this sense of absolutely like respecting it. It's a powerful thing. There's another old English tradition that says that it's it's red because it uh, springs from the blood of a dragon, often said to be slain by St. Margaret, who seems to be the more popular dragon saint from Martha in England anyway. Because uh, Margaret slays the dragon and Martha is just like made it a pet. The final thing here is that like there's a, there's a piece of um, uh, I couldn't find any particular sources on it, but it's it, uh, I found other people reporting that there's a, a Persian connotation of it representing love and those that have died for love's sake. So we have again this idea of like martyrdom as not just get me into heaven quick, but I love God more than I want to live. <laughs> Even the association with the fallen dead, which it has a larger folkloric context, and you're finding this great links to this Persian lore, you see heavily after World War One. So this is because of the poem by the McCray, the Canadian doctor, I think. Uh, I have my notes. Yeah, John McCray, yeah, in Flanders Fields, yeah. In Flanders Fields. So like in Flanders Fields, the poppies grow between the crosses row on row. That mark our place, and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing by, scarce heard amidst the guns below. Or amid, I said amidst, just pretentious, I'm told. But this is poetry. But the meaning in here about poppies is that the history of that, right? So he's in, he's in Belgium, and he saw the devastation firsthand that within the first 10 minutes of battle, the Germans had just started using chlorine gas. And so there were 6,000 French casualties in the first 10 minutes of battle. After the first 17 days, half of McRae's brigade had died in battle. And his close friend, one of his best friends, was killed in action. And he performed the burial service. And he laid, he, he, as he laid his friend to rest, he saw poppies everywhere. And that was because the poppies are not inhibited by the incredible environmental factors that were polluting everything else. 
So they did not care about the chlorine gas or the um, the mortar fire or the debris of the battle. They were starting to bloom around the soldiers' graves. And this is just because of the place that they were. And poppies, of course, being prolific and poppy seeds are their own thing. And, you know, muffins and high school, you know, driving tests, drug test mythology and all those things. It's true. You can't eat a poppy seed muffin and go take a drug test. It does, it's not good. But you can always take another one. And it brings in a little bit to what we've talked about. And I know I value cultural markers or cultural value-centered dates of commemoration of things. So, like, we perhaps don't put a lot on Veterans Day as much as we may have for those people that were involved in those wars. But I also find the the situation of the number 11, therefore, interesting, right? Because November 11th is Remembrance Day or Armistice Day or, or Veterans Day. But it's the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918 that is the end of the World War. So, like, that's already, you get an angel number there. Like, that's some big shit. And yes, it's in addition to 99 and 1. So 19, therefore 10 being the year number, right? But, but 11, 11, 11. And a 1918, it's just, there's a lot there. And I, I think that there was a trend so much in the kind of neo-pagan revival to look through such a lens of nostalgia for the, especially through the Protestant West, through to the pre-Christian past, that it blinded a lot of, of people, cultural, looking into the traditions that were extant within culture still or being added to through popular demand, through government decree, through public outcry of a demand for a holiday like Veterans Day, which is then because of a specific date that to to ignore that there are things on our calendar that move us forward or that there are people celebrating things from a heretical perspective, not just the blasphemous, but from the heretical is like, that's a type of power you can still tap into. And that if people are commemorating the dead and that, you know, poppies cry to out to this, to the fallen dead in this way, that this is how you get things like Robert Burns Day in Masonic Lodges, right? We're going to, there's going to be a feast of the haggis and it's going to be there because he was a Mason and we're going to fit. You make this culture, which just seems in jest sometimes. And at the same time, has a real significant thing if it keeps going. There's repetition creates something in all of that. And this is, I think, part of a larger thing that can be talked about in the future. Because I, I was interesting email to the show recently just about the nature, because I referenced things like traditional witchcraft. People always say, which tradition are you talking about? I was like, the traditional conceptions of witchcraft, not just this thing, but it does have a very specific agenda that was described in the 80s and 90s and permuted and some people call it folkloric witchcraft now and what that is. Everybody has their generational term for what they use and why they use it. But again, I just want to give credit where credit is due, even with acknowledging something like Veterans Day. I really think that Corey Hutchinson did a great job on that, on his New World Witchery and bringing that up early on of like tapping into July 4th or Memorial Day or any of these American holidays that the average person doesn't necessarily feel like they have, the average neo-pagan witch specifically perhaps does not feel like they want to necessarily participate in the celebration of because it's part of a larger popular culture. At the same time, there is a power there. There's a huge power. And at the same time, we're all, uh, well, I don't know. I certainly am I'm, I'm guilty of like looking at a variety of uh of, of you know Roman festivals or something and being like oh that's excellent that aligns with this obscure necromancy practice that I'm interested in yeah. while also needing to be aware that like that's also just a public holiday sometimes yeah. that there isn't necessarily it isn't necessarily wholly esoteric and probably has more in common with people dragging around uh you know asking for a penny for a guy or any of these like you know folk means popular at a certain yeah. point things yeah. people actually do like the mass of people not just interesting weirdos so bringing it back to topics, because I think, I, thank you, Poppy. I was 
touched upon it, you know, the holy guardian angel and this concept, but the specifics of ayahuas are fascinating. The like yeah, yeah, yeah. historical the, stuff. Yeah. Like the idea that we can use this as our demon of the day without meaning any disrespect to the people like it's the holy guardian angel of Crowley. Like he himself was very, he had his own special poetic words of how much this entity contained all opposites within itself for him. One of the things that a lot of people don't have a copy of this because it's so expensive. I think the actual pencil, it's a copy of my buddy's book here that I'm borrowing just for this. It's 125 bucks. We bought it like 20 years ago. It's just rarely rare. But in the magical record of the B666, the poetry on the demonic side, I have an entire lecture on Satan and Thelema, but the I didn't even get to, I actually didn't reference this book very much. And if I had, I could expand that lecture by a whole other hour on, the, on his relationship to the devil. But um, it, I mean, it's real, it's real intense stuff. And it's interesting because in other places, you want to talk about the two opposites. All right. Let's talk about the two opposites. Like in the one, in the one, okay, we have him describing here. This is from the eighth Aether. Okay. So in the Aether stuff, when we're talking about, you know, Ivos, which is much later after the reception of the book of the law, because in, in the reception of the book of the law, you have him as the minister of poor Pakrat, the minister of silence, of the deity of silence. Horus as the little baby Hippocrates, giving you the shh or maybe biting his thumb. In, in this, he describes himself not only as the minister of Orpokrat, the passive, you know, the babe in the egg, that sort of thing. He describes himself as the minister of Rahorkut or Raharakti, uh, which is like a war god form, the more adult form of Horus. So he's the minister of both, or both Horuses, baby, elder, passive, very active, fiery. And he says, but he is a viceroy of the unknown king. And you're like, who's this unknown king? And he describes it again. He says, I am the influence of the concealed one. And that's a reference to the Zohar. And then we get a lot of this other stuff about the wheel that has eight and 70 parts. He's talking about Rhoda and all of these sorts of these things. But he says, all is equivalent to the gate that is the name of my Lord when it is spelt fully. And in his note, he says the gate equals Balet. Spelt fully is 434. Well, this in there's only two major associations in Crowley's uh, Sefer Sefer or the, the 777 and other Kabbalistic writings. He gives 434 as the Lord of War, Aish Melchim, which is really funny because in everywhere else where we're talking about Ivos as Satan, which we'll get to, here we have Aish Melchim, which is Yahweh. It's Yahweh is a man of war. It's from Exodus 15.3. And I think that's really fascinating because here we have ostensibly both God and uh, association with God and, and uh, his adversary or, or the adversary. And Again, this comes back to that that weird ontology, and, and you know, and, and, and all of Crowley's stuff, all the transabyssal things contain their opposites. So when we try to go like, well, who is Ivos? It's like, well, he's the angel of the Lord, mm-hmm. but which angel? <laughs> you know, and uh, how that doesn't break anything at all. It starts to make, to me anyway, a complete sense. You know, why the, the Holy Garden Angel might actually be your adversary because he's your initiator. That's his job to play steel and steel, sharpening one another, that sort of thing. But if, to give it the demon, we talk about the demon of the day, you know, because it's, it's, he says, come, Ivas, come, thou devil, our Lord, on these snow glittering slopes of poison crystals, these soft crisps, crisp, deadly pure, exhilarating feather flakes on these, my soul shall stride. I think here, by the way, he's talking about cocaine somewhere in here. He's like doing a lot of cocaine and writing about his angel. <laughs> it, serious. He says... What mortal verse should please the ear that loves no less than a stabbed rival's moan, 
a soul snarl as it swears her murder oath, or a child's scream of fear and pain, when she or I, at bidding of her, call Satan to pour brandy of crime into our lust's drained goblet, where once there foamed and sparkled love champagne. <laughs> I thought that one was real cute. Uh, but he goes on and on where he says, I, the cocaine fiend, laugh at him. I sing for our God, our devil, our Lord, Ivas. He goes on of devilry, of dire desire, of dread delight. So he has a kind of aesthetic here going on in his journal with this. And over and over again, if you were to, if you go through the magical record of the B666, Ivos is ecstatically associated with the devil, our Lord. And he invokes Ivos at one point and he gets a vision of Baphomet and of the goat of Mendes. And it brings to him this sort of words from the oath of an obsessimus. And again, I, I mean, there's just so much devilry in just that one book alone. So when he People try to equivocate on it. He, he gives you no equivocation in this piece. And you find it again in uh, Magic and Theory and Practice. There's a note on in the chapter of Black Magic and Packs where he, he identifies Ivos with the solar hermetic, the solar phallic hermetic Lucifer. And then he again attaches it to Satan. So this is just repeatedly, this angel is Satan. He even says at one point, he was called Ivos, but now called Satan. And, and that's again in the magical records. But it's funny because simultaneously, when we're talking about these opposites, he, you know, he, when he does his numerology in the Aethers, Ivos initially adds for him to 78. And I think he has it. So he says that it's the influence from Keter and Mesla, right? That's 78, the influence from Keter. In other places, he'll, I didn't write down the exact lettering, but there's a special spelling. There's another name for another spelling of Ivos that links the paths from Keter to Malkut. And so it becomes a form of the lightning bolt that you see in the Tree of Life, where you have the serpent, which is like all the paths. And then you have the lightning bolt, which is the Sephiroth connected all the way down. And then uh, there's another path that he draws that's the path of Ivos rather than the lightning bolt. It's his own connection. So he spans the whole tree of life. This isn't a minor spirit. This is like the messenger of God. And by making him, like I said earlier, the, the minister of the, the, the Ice Malachim, you know, he's specifically a minister of, of God the Most High. So it definitely puts, it's not an easy way to identify this as just something, some small spirit, or he doesn't want to conceive of it as just a lower entity. He's mentioned, so you can find the the Ivots mentioned in the, both the eighth and the 17th aethers of the vision and the voice. He describes it as this guardian, the mighty angel that extendeth from the first to the last and maketh mysteries that are beyond. He defines, I think it's kind of interesting too, because he almost defines it as, there's a sense in which it's being defined as logos. So the word is deadlier than the lightning. And he says, the angel is made manifest upon the throne of the high priestess, the priestess of the silver star. Mm -hmm. Now he's referring here to Gimel, the path of Gimel on the tree of life that connects Keter to Tifereth. And so you might find that in the writer weight tarot, you know, as the, the high priestess. And if you look in that book, in that tarot card, she's holding the Torah in her lap. So this would be like upon the throne. And of course the Torah is the word, right? So there's another kind of sense of logos, but he does this permutation of Torah as Rhoda, the wheel, right? Which in the Aether it identifies it with as the seven in the, I mean, the eight and the 70, the wheel. And of course, there's 78 cards of tarot. And so he, these mysteries are all a part of the nature of Ivas. But in a way, by saying you're all the tarot cards, you're the wheel of fortune itself. You are the logos, the Torah. Like you're all, you're part of all of these mysteries. 
It's like saying that Ivos is the body of God, the tree of life itself. He's the he's the minister of, of silence. In Crowley's system here, this silence we're talking about is like Ayn Sof, Ayn Sofor. We're talking about the veils of the negative. So this is literally like a, an echo or a lightning bolt in the darkness come to, you know, from the farthest beyond of, of divinity down into the, to the earth. And you have the quote, it reminds me of the quote, of course, I saw Satan fall in, you know, like lightning from heaven. And I actually think he directly relates those two things. He also notes Ivos as the eye in the star of Hermes, the messenger whose formula is 418 being the full spelling of Jeth, the charioteer, uh, and of course, Abrahadabra. So initially that's his 78 stuff where he had, he kind of, that's his initial understanding of, of Ivos as almost like a path from God to man. But later he gets a spelling. There's some really weird stuff that goes down with a man named Samuel Bar Ivos who contacts Crowley. So this story, and this comes into his play on like, how do you know an entity is, it exists outside of you. Mm-hmm. And he wants to give this idea. It's almost like early Karl Popper or something predictability, falsifiability. Can it make predictions? And does it have knowledge you couldn't possibly have known, but that comes true? Deep internal knowledge that even you yourself don't have, things along those lines. And he believes that Ivos demonstrates these things. And one way that happens is he's doing like a sort of astral vision to speak with another magician. This is the Amalantra working. And I don't quote me, but I think he's in Italy at the time. So I don't know, but Yourself. Uh, I, I think he's in Naples, but I don't, I, maybe I'm wrong. So he's speaking with this person and he's trying to get a spelling of Therion. And for whatever reason, it's very important to him to understand like the Kabbalah of the beast. And he gets this sort of like wacky thing that just doesn't, it is not making sense to him. So he quits the vision. He gets a letter then that was postmarked at the exact time he was in the middle of the vision with this unknown magician. And in it, it's this man named Samuel Bar Ivos, who basically is like, hey, dude, I've counted the number of the man. And he gives, you know, it's 666 or whatever. And it's this enumeration of Therion in, I believe, Hebrew. And he also gives the Hebrew for Ivos itself, which is Ayin Yud Vav Zayin, which is 93. And he's like, how did you not, how did you, Mr. 93, not figure out that Ivos can be spelled in Hebrew as 93? And so Crowley's like, what the hell? And that there's a man named Ivos who's, I think it's like E.E. E. Cummings' secretary or something. Seriously. And uh, he has Ivos in his name. And, and, it's, and, and he sent me this letter right when I was doing the ritual. So for him, this is really confirmatory that something weird is happening outside of just a, you know, we're all having imaginary visions here. And, you know, the guy gives him, Crowley comes up with a Greek form that confirms Ivos as 418 as well. And so he's really excited that the importance of all of this cryptogram behavior is that it has the ability to show like encoded information of significance that he feels he couldn't possibly have known. But moreover, it correlates to certain physical events taking place in the world. So it's not just that like you can do funny things with math. It's that the funny things you're doing with math are correlating to events taking place that almost feel arranged. And this goes back to this idea of the angels everywhere. It's in common moments. It's in a man named Samuel Bar Ivos, and yet it's the minister of Corpocrat. That's such a strong engine for the investigation impulse, right? And you can see parallels of that, I think, in um, 
the uh, Terry wrist in the yes of, of like who is this person? Is he real? Is this just not a weird thing? And this heavily like this is raw universe, but Robert Anton Wilson universe, right? Of like you can't tell what's the joke and what's not, which explores. And one of the things that I think the Discordians and the a lot of the kind of '90s reaction to the kind of uh, sweeping traditionalism that was starting to come in that was exploring this. And I remember my early exposure to Thelema was like Duquette's classes. It, it is condo, right? Like that's like 90s shit. You go, you're like, oh, we're going over to this magician's house. Like, oh, wow, cool. He writes books. But like the problem is to, or perhaps uh, where I'm going with this is that it can lead towards the paranoic. And I mean this in the classical sense that you have to find ways to bring it back to the pronoic of yep. like, you have to find both ways that it's, you don't want it to be that the whole universe is working against you. That is not how it goes. And unfortunately, a lot of these systems, number systems, especially because they can be endlessly looked into, lead people towards the paranoic as opposed to the pronoic of like, things are working out in my favor. And then sometimes you get the, the like the infestation of the epitome of brocultism of like, I'm the gift for everybody. And I have solved the code that is in the book of the law. Yep. Every woman yeah. is the- Scarlet Woman that is like a little too pronoic. Like we have to find maybe it's the active passive balance or the inner outer thing again of like let's ground this a little bit in an objectivity and a measurable, uh, measurable, a measurable metric. Yes, that's very well. Well, I don't always think Crowley was successful at doing that. I, I do think that at least in his writing that is stressed. It's one of the reasons why there's so much scathing humor about this behavior. You know, he compares it to the how is a raven like a writing desk, uh-huh. and he's very clear about the fact that through numerology here you know this gematria you can pretty much arrive at whatever you want it's why just getting kabbalah crazy is not the point ultimately it has to ground in so you're trying to use it as a way to communicate with spirits in a sort of cypheric way that can breed some sort of it's almost like um he gives examples in magic and theory and practice of like how it could be used to prove that it's not your own imagination and that the person you're communicating with couldn't have known. So it's being treated like a decodable cipher on both ends, like you might use in World War II, you know, Um, but you're doing that also with entities. But simultaneously, you're expecting predictions from these things and they better come true because if they don't, it's worthless. So there does need to be a falsifiability. You can't falsify these internal Kabbalistic insights. But if something leads you to believe World War One is about to happen, you know, and it's going to happen in Turkey, it's going to, you know, or wherever, it's going to start off here. Those are things that can be confirmed or denied. Well, he came to believe that things like the Bartzabel working and others legitimately did that. And they did, as long as they did, if they, if the publication dates are to be held up, unless there was trickery with the publication dates, he basically predicts World War One. And, you know, he believes the Book of the Law in more coded form is talking about both great wars. But in terms of like, he, you know, he gives all kinds of examples for personal reasons why he believes that. I think he does expect more than just cypheric behavior coming out of this in order for someone to, to get any uh, validity out of it. And he's what he's not asserting is that there's like secret number power just inherent in it. There's a utility to this and it can be used wrongly very easily and often is. And he makes that clear in his introduction to 777. Again, I feel like we're getting at this concept of like vision isn't just about looking at things or being shown things or even having an internal experience. It's about arriving somewhere new or adding something 
of some kind of novelty, whether or not we want to frame that as outside of ourselves or something, you know, a priori we, we or priori that we have to like build the steps to. We're talking about interactions with spirits, encounters uh, with states and and forces, influences and awarenesses that speak of a, a two-way street, right? Of, of yeah. what are you getting out of this? What's the spirit delivering you? What is it carrying? What messages? And I think this leads <laughs> impressively neatly, uh, he said, tapping, uh, patting himself on the back, to channeling, right? Because we're talking yes. not just about the receiving of whole texts, although we are, obviously, our other, our other feasts are of the reception of the Book of the Law, but of, you already said, things that come to pass that are true, predictions, that prophecy. And prophecy is interesting here, I think, because it's not just the prediction of events, it's also the revelation of mysteries, right? And I think this yeah. is a key element in understanding the ways we can take Crowley's work. But it's also whether or not we're talking about the reception of our, our favorite or least favorite texts, right? Of, of, of concrete examples of things like the Book of the Law or even the spanning of the diaries of these uh, angelical operations. But we're also talking about receiving secrets or instructions or, or recipes in a way that can be, again, something that isn't just the product of being declared a prophet of something and therefore receiving earth-shattering, aeon-turning revelations, but also just how we get things from our spirit work that's useful beyond just being for entertainment purposes only. And again, it, it also obviously leads to possession as well, because when we talk about channeling, we're often talking about someone in pauper and in stereotypical depiction that's someone who isn't present themselves, but something else is speaking through them or, or moving well, through. Yeah. I think even on that scale, right, it, it changes through timeline. And that's, that's my lick the toad moment. But like channeling is often used specifically as a civilized form of possession. 100%. And deliberately whitewashes the experience to the extent of like early descriptions or alternate descriptions of the Delphic Oracle, just sitting calmly in a chair and spurtering as opposed to like inhaling toxic fumes, being fed toxic things and frothing at the mouth and having seizures fits, whereby her twittering and like phatic language of like horrible things twisting her body was interpreted by priests and given in perfect meter, mm -hmm. as opposed to like, you know, I summon the ancient ones from the ancient oceans to come to this table. Sure, that's cool. But there, there's always this impulse in that, like, when we get to, there's several names for it, but channeling within, let's say, traditional Wicca is going to have this sense that it's not me, it's the goddess, but it is still, the person's still there. The person is experiencing this as part of it, which mm -hmm. deliberately, and channeling seems to imply that, that the person, mm -hmm. for instance, you can channel a book and write it down as you're hearing it. But oftentimes there's this next level of channeling that gives over to a possession language where that starts to become much harder. The utilization of the body, of the physic of the body becomes harder the more intensely the connection is, is bonded. And so mm -hmm. I, I think channeling becomes this interesting thing of what's the role of uh, his his woman in the in this thing like who's speaking who's not oh speaking. yeah what is the great the, or for instance in when you go into treasure texts of Adriana and like the revelation that some people do actually see golden letters floating in the air when a terma is revealed and if they are have a scribe they're reading out what they see but the famous example given by Lama Sultram in Colorado of recounting the story that she had heard so just making sure I do my due diligence not my story to referencing her but that terma was being revealed and the 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 Turton, the, the person who can reveal termas, says you missed something. 
And the scribe is like, no, I haven't. He goes, no, it's still in the air. Like the letters disappear as they're written down by this other person. And he's seeing the character floating in the air as to other people who see scribbles as terma, as turtons. And they suddenly it's in their head memorized and they can now say Ooh. it. And like everybody has a different relationship and certain texts are given in certain ways. The language of the Dakinis, they look at one symbol on a tapestry and suddenly they're given something in a full download and they have to go write it down right now or tell someone write this down because it's only going to come now. And it's similar in some ways to what I've seen in my experience with possession-based traditions of a spirit coming down. They often will not give a recipe more than once. And is that to protect the mount that it is just improvising in that kind of inundation of spirit-charged energy that's coming in? Or is it it's like, no, 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 this is the limitations of the matter. <laughs> this is what it is. Like, I don't, you know, we don't repeat ourselves. Get it right or don't talk to me about it. And yeah, the notion here, too, of the kind of evolution of and the study of the grimoric forms of evocation, invocation, and the battle between those terms, which is its own thing that we I think we've talked about in the past, of mm-hmm. learning to have a relationship with the spirit, even if it's by the complete traditional means, whereby that spirit you are now channeling information from that spirit, whether or not it's fully informed in front of you and whole materialization, or whether it is, you know, just a voice off to your left shoulder, a la Crowley with Iwas, you know, and I, I find that description so beautiful of like, uh, is it in Confessions where just, just describing the voice of yeah. Iwas, like it's a beautiful tenor, possibly a baritone, that there's no, that the language itself, I can't detect the station of birth or anything like going on like that. And that they're dressed in, you know, Assyrian or Persian garb that was certainly not Arabic, I think is his weird yeah. parenthetical. But the idea of an incredibly incarnate being that he says was made of fine matter as if it's smoke, which then brings to mind, well, you're in the land of the jinn, which is a whole other thing. Yeah. Is, which brings back us back to talks with uh, Jay last episode of like Iblis being in some many permutations, a jinn that was then elevated to the status of angel and what that means and how this happens. But I have some stuff to say with channeling on this because we have two characters here in the in the channel. With regards to the reception of the Book of the Law, we talk about Alistair Crowley, but there's also Rosie Dith Kelly. And again, a lot of the stuff before the Book of the Law is received is really telling. And like I was going to say that, you know, I, I was wondering to myself, like, were these the kind of people that could do this? Or at least to my mind, so I'm being biased here, but, or like, was just, just someone fresh out of the golden dawn who wanted to be a prophet. And I really think it's the, 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 the former Rosita Kelly has a couple weird experiences before they receive the book of the law. So they go to Egypt the first time and he does the preliminary invocation of the Guisha to show her the silps, nothing. She doesn't see anything, but at all, but she does get weird. And she, you know, says they're waiting for you and all that. And then he's just very annoyed because that's not what wasn't the point of the ritual. And then nothing happened. And they moved on to go to India on their way back to Egypt for the second time. There's a moment that takes place. It's the bat incident. And I think it's really important when looking at Rosie Dith Kelly as a potential, well, I guess we'll use the term mount because of what happens. There's a, a moment in the room where there are bats all about this room. And if I recall this right, I think either she or Crowley kills one of them. And he describes it as if the spirit of the bat that died entered her. And she begins freaking out, climbing the pole and chirping like the bat as and is acting scared as if she's the just recently died bat 
that doesn't know what to do with itself. And so she's literally possessed of the spirit of the bat. And as you were saying, not in the controlled way of, oh, I'm there. I sense the bat's death, but no, she's become animal. Yeah. And this is the first time he notices that is what is going on. And then they move on to Egypt. And so the second time he begins the sylph, the, the preliminary invocation of the Guisha, because the first time he did it, they're in the King's chamber. And he talks about the light that comes up. They, they stay the night. And there's like this sort of lilac light that appears in the King's chamber. And he eventually just stuffs out the candle and reads by this weird light to finish the spell. And again, she's just in a trance saying, and they're waiting for you, but nothing comes of it. Now the bad experience and they come back. The second time it happens, they're just, I don't know if they're in their hotel, they're somewhere. And then she, there's more, more data comes through. And it's ostensibly through her that this is happening. So yeah. she's the one channeling this thing. And in by Crowley's description, it's very bodily. She's not really there. Even when she's saying it, she's not, she's not doing it like your neighborhood French Quarter tarot reader who thinks they know a lot about your life and they'll tell you what your ancestors need to tell you. That's not what's happening. She's gone. And when she's saying these things, so that when we get to the actual reception of the law, she's the one that tells him he's supposed to be in that room. All this information that it's from Horace, that's the stele of revealing, that's all Rosie to Kelly. Mm-hmm. And he's hyper annoyed because he's the big bad magician and she doesn't know shit. And why is she telling him all this stuff? And he tests her and he believes at some point, he's like, well, I'm going to go with this because it's there's some things happening here that I can't explain. And that's when, you know, you get the reception of the law and then the, then his channeling begins. And it's almost like a transference. She gets hit first and then it influences him. And then Ivas appears over the left shoulder. But in his description, it's not just clear audience that's taking place. He's at pains to describe the fact that it's driving his hand. Like it's, he, he doesn't want to call it automatic writing, but it's like, there's more going on. And even in the book, it's like the chant shape of the letters are important. As if like the prophecy isn't just what the content of the book, it's in the style of it. And that there'll be things that he couldn't have known that his hand are doing. And so again, I think that's like, it's channeling in, in, a, in a, a near possessory sense. And he even says that when he finishes a chapter, he stands up immediately on the hour, which he was supposed to, as if it's just, it just happens. I mean, it has so much in line with broader studies of this type of phenomenon, right? But like the idea in of the current corriente, like that, you know, if someone starts to see something and someone else is tuned in, like you'll see the experience mediums all click in and they'll just start finishing each other's sentences and three or more people are like, yeah, and this, and this, and this. So that idea of transference or, 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 or that thing of something hitting somebody first, who is the most, there's this lovely Brazilian term of puta astral, which is astral whore of just like, you're the one that gets hit by everything first, whether it's the bajavento, like just the general of the energy coming in the room, or it's an ere, or it's or any cachiso or caboclo that comes through, you're, you're the one that mounts everything, right? You're puta astral. But this notion then of like her being the most receptive, which fits into a lot of possession narratives, is certainly if, if Crowley was taking it up the bum in many cultures, then it would allow him to be more possessed more readily because there's, there's a popular belief in many cultures that have possession as more than just a negative experience because it exists in, men, in most cultures as a negative only um, uh, in modern uh, cultures, but where it can be something as other than negative, that it is specifically those who can be penetrated that have a different relationship to being uh, possessed. 
uh, which you know goes against the kind of heteronormativity of the Pope is talking to God, but how is he talking to God? Uh, you know, what is what is the nature of this clear audience that he has with God? And the tongue goes both ways, which there's, oh, there reminded me of something randomly with the osteo martyrs of one of the later martyrs. The tongue was cut out and thrown to a falcon, but the falcon didn't eat it, and the arms or hands were cut off and thrown to dogs, but the dogs wouldn't eat it. This classical thing of like animals saying, I will not engage in my animal nature because this person is too holy. Anyway, we have- oh, uh- with the book of the law, or like it reminds me of Mary of Egypt's lion helping bury her body because that was her his friend. Like the priest comes and the lion helps the man bury Mary of Egypt's body. But uh, with the book of the law, it always fascinated me with like how much is just right time at the right place because if we accept channeling as a possibility, as something other than a negative experience, it's not really, if we're talking about this way, I guess that there's no consent possibly really here, which is very true of many um, spirit initiations. But that you could be walking along and and in the wrong place at the wrong time and a spirit will fall into you and you now deliver the message. You also get the full example of what is that pivotal moment of Crowley's path of publishing something that then gets viewed as you know something that you shouldn't and you have knowledge that you shouldn't have. And so we're going oh, to yeah. elevate you past this, which could be a form of channeling or a form that, you know, let's say a spirit that's watching out for you makes you phrase things a certain way when you're talking and someone sees that and goes, whoa, I just recognized something that channeling also has to be detached from the messenger and that it is not, you can be a prophet and not know how to do any of the damn things that you just said to do. And Mm -hmm. magic is one of those things that especially has this ability for in the traditionally just in the traditional descriptions of things because it's used by historians, bad historians, not like Al, but that people who will apologize or apologize that's the wrong term. Dismiss magic as pure charlatanry of evidence as to why it is that the people who are doing money drawing spells or money spells are themselves in destitution, or that if they are doing well, then it must be because they're scamming people. That there's mm-hmm. this automatic bias against just because you do not necessarily need to know how to perform the surgery to read from the textbook about how to perform the surgery. We're not talking about writing the surgery, but if we believe that channeling is a thing, you know, writing the book, but if we're talking about channeling, you don't have to know, have a fucking clue what you're saying. Totally. You can channel things that you ultimately are never going to put into progress, put into practice because they're not exactly. You. you channel and, it in and, the community, you channeled it for whoever. Exactly. You know, often the Oracle so, isn't the person expected to put it into practice. It's no. like you get these people who are channeling, like you need to do this on this moon. And like you were saying earlier, a recipe is given. Well, that recipe is never going to be given again. And it's only for that person. It was told to not the channeler. And that, which also brings up the point of even in the grimoire sense that we've talked about, all three of us at different conversations, of when we look at grimoire ascriptions or recipes or what these are, the point is in some way to get to a point where you are getting your own recipes from these spirits. Because in truth, many of these things might just be at best practices or just notes from someone who actually wrote it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we get that, especially from like, why would you conjure a spirit? Why would you go to all this length? So they can bring you the best book of magic and the understanding yeah. of it. That's the go-to example which, as you say, might be, might indicate that it's the most popular or first thing you do or most important thing, or simply that it's like the go-to uh, text example of like fill in or do whatever my will is, as it often puts as well. Yeah, no, it, 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 exactly, exactly. These are all examples of getting something out of the interaction or the calling of the spirit or the discharging of it to go and do something. And also, I you know, not to decry that like it's all bullshit to do the like a lot of the things experience wise in studying ritual there are so many examples of theologians from many traditions talking about how a ritual is done 
without consideration of necessarily when the ritual will take for the person. There might be a, a performative utterance as to when the ritual is itself complete, but that does not mean that the ritual needs to be all four hours, or sometimes you perform it as all four hours because that's what's expected. And you really only needed to do five minutes here because this person is very different. And maybe that's the same way that like a wedding, some people really want the pomp, the pomp and circumstance. Some people just are like, get me to the justice of the peace and do it. And both things are equally, you know, binding forms of marital contract. The additional side of that is that thinking about, which is writing the article for the British Genie, but talking, looking at Jay's essay in the Shumps of the criticism of, or one of the reasons why lunar mansions might be important, and this is specific to this, what he's writing about, is because advanced astrological elections are really fucking difficult to compute as someone who is not in the, or who is in the everyday realm of things. But to see where the moon is in the sky and part demarcate it by stars as starting places of this is the bounds of this mansion is much easier to tell. And so therefore, what is going to be the more popular form of everyday magic might be the one that does not involve hours of setup calculations and possible errors. (laughs) And although there are beautiful elections possible, those are things that you plan for. But there's no way you're going to be able to do election, election, election every day because I want to take people's computers away from them and still see what they can do. And that's just me being a bitch. And I still, yes, and I still have all those apps on my phone too, just because it is wonderful. What a splendid age we live in. But similarly here in talking with spirits and talking with channeling, this is one of the great things of spiritism is that it, spiritism in the United States is heavily where it evolves, right? And specifically in the area where I am at right now, the Hudson Valley was, was, a, was a kettle for it, crucible for it. But it was intrinsically evolved with abolition and feminism. And this was because you destroyed the authority of the church. You destroyed the need for man to only go. It's the ultimate in Protestantism that you can talk directly to the spirits. You do not need a medium to do it, except that we are a reality. Some people are better mediums. So sometimes that's hard. It's kind of like, you know, anybody can become anything they want, but sometimes we have predispositions that make it like a little bit easier to become such and yeah. such athlete or such and such surgeon or such and such whatever. So it's, it's an interesting thing that we then see, oh, some of these old truths might be based in some actual groundable theories. But anyway, the idea that spiritism and the intrinsic relationship of the medium to be able to talk it to spirits directly in this way, channeling and psychic exercises became such a thing, right? To train the brain to become that psychic psychicism is an intrinsic hallmark of humanity, that we all have these abilities and that you just have to figure out what your version of it is. And that's the important part of it is that we all have intuition, which might not necessarily be anything more than just extremely systematic, fast thinking based upon experience and training, but still a lightning flash where we don't have to think about our decision or its position in the body. There's many ways to play with it, but that the, these training exercises go to like, how can you develop these gifts? Are you clairaudient? Yeah. Are you clairvoyant? Are you smellant? I don't know what that word, clairolfactory, but yeah, clairolspice. That what you're bringing up too is is a sort of a pivotal part of Crowley's system in the sense that when we were talking earlier about Kelly and Ivor Back's failure at magic to to die by sticking their finger out of the circle and Crowley responding that it they may be their own capacity, I think that partially influenced him to this idea that capacity and you know informal magic is either a gift or something that can be needs to be developed. And so he started looking at the development. Oh, well, what what are the qualities of a good magician? And for him, it turns out 
development of the individual genius is not only something that everyone can do, it might lead some people into formal magic. Like we look at sorcery and things like that uh, and, and, you know, mysticism or whatever, but it may also just be the fact that individual genius can be applied to everyday living. And these same faculties that make a good magician make a person who's successful at knowing themselves their way and what they want to do. And so I think for him, a lot of what he ends up teaching is the development of that faculty first. And then we can get into the weeds of magic later if you have a capacity for it in and of itself. And that's where you see these huge diversions between him and, say, today's grimoire revival or that sort of thing. He's not really trying to get people to start out with long lists of memorized prayers. He's that, That'll be good for some people. But more important to you now is that have your shit together and know yourself and apply that to your capability, know your capabilities and apply them as you see fit. As that's, you know that's fantastic. Just in the, like, it's, it's so ignored, right? Yep. Yeah. Someone comes to a magical teacher and all three of us have had students. So you, someone can come to us and have no idea how they study, no idea what works for them as they study, and no idea of their own discipline that they can commit towards the study. And that makes the teacher's job so much harder right because then you have to take them through you if you care you might then take them through an entire course of like well now we have to test shit out this is like an allergy test this is going to be tedious and there's not going to be magic involved in this this is things that you can learn about yourself before coming to any path whether it's purely mundane or magical or if there is even a difference between the two and that's what you're touching on is the blurring of this thing of we're not just talking ritual magic in this way it also speaks to something that is not talked about as much in the western canon of magic but but you hint at it in 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 a beautiful way of so much of magical systems that are engaged with like priesthood wise let's say there is a not universal and so I won't propose that but common theme that the magician themselves is in need of the medicine that they are seeking and therefore more imbalanced than the person who can do their lives without magic 100% <laughs> And well, the, we are, we're crazy ones that need magic in order to even function as normal human beings. Yeah. And like, that side of it, of we are the medicine that we seek, whether it's the a Sangoma priest or someone who's possessed by a gin because they have, they go into gin magic because they have a natural propensity towards channeling, towards possession, or whether it's a, a Vudasant who falls into trance or someone who has extreme visions and nightmares from when they're little and can't sleep and they have to figure out how to even sleep and they have to figure out how to start over. You're supposed to be a healer. And you're like, okay, thanks. But I would just like to sleep. So yeah. it, it can bring up this kind of noble martyr martyrdom that can happen. You know, you can pretend you're an osteo yourself, but it is also something that is not talked about and would be really good medicine for the kind of, um, and I, I don't mean this as merely something representative of ceremonial magic, but we do find it heavily in, in the kind of bro platform, right? Of like how important that person is to figuring everything out. The, the worship of the will can also leave one terrifically unhumble in, in yeah. not in the very Christian way of you should have not celebrate. You should celebrate your successes. That's not what I'm not Swedish. I'm Latino. <laughs> so there's like, fuck that. But you also can say, maybe I don't need to broadcast everything, everybody, every single insight I have, because this was for me. What is for other people? What is for the community? What are those things? It's if you're getting possessed by yourself at your own shrine constantly and saying, oh, I lost two hours of my time. Did anybody record what happened? Because that's not necessarily a positive thing. Were your dishes done? Is your laundry folded? Like what the fuck happened for two hours? Because life's short enough. We don't need to lose two hours just because you got drunk and called a spirit. No, I, I, think, that, I think that's completely fair. At some point, 
It's not just, I think that's, and again, something that I think Crowley would warn against. It's not just about having crazy, phenomenal experiences that you get to go, wow. And he, at least for his part, was actually, you know, throughout his confessions, highly annoyed when phenomena appeared that were not the resultant end of the ceremony or were not in some way, you know, elevating him towards a deeper understanding of the angel or God or whatever you want to call it. Like, I am but, all, I'm, that, I feel very akin to him in that. There are knocks on the walls and someone just smashed a glass that I did. None of that was necessary. What does yeah. that have to do? With, he's pretty annoyed at that. And what's really funny, and again, this is my jab at the materialists and reductionists of his stuff. Going through the confessions, there are, and even in magic theory and practice, there are story after story of poltergeist-like phenomenon, demonic, like the demonic stuff from the Abramelin ritual. It's just all over supernaturalism. And the thing is, he really plays it like the man in the sense that it just doesn't matter. He's not denying it in any way. It's just completely freaking irrelevant to his goal, which is knowledge and conversation of the Holy Garden Angel. And for him to find out where these secret sanctuary of saints that he read about all the way back in his youth you know, that guide mankind, you know, he really is looking for this group of individuals that the Golden Dawn calls the secret chiefs, and that of, of which perhaps Ivos is one, whatnot, that are elevating man to the next stage of their evolution spiritually, and so on and so forth. The Mahatmas and all that. No one needs, you know, lights flickering and, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. app forts and table tapping, like all of that is just so distracting. But I think- you save the, the world here, people. Yeah. It's, is it the false unicorn horn again? They're like, one of the reasons that we can always decry spiritualists is the sheer fraud that actually was documented of people cracking knuckles. But how many people can be told by their good friend the same advice that they will pay $150 to a psychic for right. and ignore their friend and only give it advice when they have paid a lot of money and it's someone they deem as an authority for some reason? Let me respond to that because I, I want to play both sides here. It's there. I think there is... <laughs> Whether we get annoyed by phenomena or not, it serves, they exist for a reason. And I, and not just because they are the asides of the appearance of a power, there may be like an intellectual, how do I say this, like a spiritual reason that I think there are some people who just cannot really invest themselves until they know that this isn't a game. And that often yes. comes through being injured deeply, hurt, or even scared out of their wits. And they either proceed with it or they don't. And they start taking things more seriously and they know. They de-internalize it. So it's not just mental masturbation. I also think on the other side of this, why do you, why might you not listen to your friend? To some degree, there's a good reason. Because if you're thinking about, for I, I do this all the time. Why do I care about the book of the law? I wouldn't if I didn't think it was inspired by something more than just a good philosopher. Like that, don't get me wrong. I like, I like to read all kinds of philosophers, but I wouldn't stick to a singular text so incredibly obsessively if I didn't think there was something more to it, a foresight that I can't get out of my neighbor. Now, I can get all kinds of great foresights out of my neighbor, but I don't necessarily get a prophetic time-traveling foresight. Those are that, that would be a kind of value that I wouldn't get out of that. So th there's something to, I guess, preternatural authority that it's why I'm not reading James Joyce and living by it, you know, <laughs> aside from not understanding any of it. But, um, <laughs> you know, Ulysses is my, my holy book. Because it's about as, at first, it's about as rational as the book of love. At first glance, they're the same book. Finnegan's Wake all the way. So yeah, me. I think, but I mean, like, I, I mean, again, it's just, you go to the reader because your your hopes are having like a trans-dimensional look at your situation and not just, you know, you don't go to the reader that's going to give you 
the self-help advice that you pulled from a Facebook meme. I, I, I agree. The phenomena are there for a reason. I tend to, as you both know, I don't celebrate them. I don't like them. I think they're a waste of yeah. time after a certain point. I do think that they are useful in the ingress. I also think that we, in if I'm going to play inner outer demon and, and bring it back to what are the internal phenomena, is also important to learn to dismiss because that is where we get yeah. the becoming God, right? That's where we become, oh my God, I'm getting possessed. That will destroy the possession because you have now reified Every time. And yeah, that learning to not have that strong of a commentary is what will yeah. allow the submission to something other. And so that 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 mapping of, and I think that's why it in because it's it's i can feel my godparents and the people that trained me being like do not sink into those external things too big because that's the same mirror process of what you will then go oh my god it's happening when you feel it in you you need to keep dancing whether that's metaphoric or literal of just keep the current flowing and if it's not about you getting possessed but of facilitating a message coming through then you can figure out how to move that energy if it's let's say a spiritist séance mesa blanca or whatever or whether it's a kimbanda session umbanda session whatever it is if you're if it's a drumming pro orisha the, the point is that you keep moving that current and the current will do what it needs to do. Even if that's quickly flashing through someone and what would be called bajavento in, in, in Brazil, like that energy wave of the current can heal itself. It can make a person find their breath and their center again. And that's not even a conscious entity yet. There's these things that can happen. But if we rely on the phenomena too much, it will supplant. And specifically with possession, sometimes it happens spontaneously, sure. But a lot of times it's a very gradual thing, just as exorcism, as we've talked about, is a very gradual process for most people. It's, you know, refining and slowly purifying over time. But it, your ego clinging to it saying, I am getting possessed. There's the I. Now it's little claws of your brain going, oh my God, it's happening. I've fucked you up. For the, now you're not going to experience it. Now it's not going to happen. That, that's, in, so that, that's in Raja Yoga too. Like when, yes. when you're, it's exactly the same thing when you're, whether you're doing a mantra or you're beginning to have that dhyana on an object and you realize you've lost yourself for a moment and you go, wow, I was gone. And then it's just starting all over again. You know, you just, that moment, that sharp break, is probably called breaks, you know, just snapped you out of it is that sort of self-consciousness. Which is interesting because I think one of the things that we're talking about in some ways, I'm pushing along, I'm going to get through those topics of juggling things. And obviously the magician card is such an easy pairing for Crowley because of this idea of having the two, as far as it is in the Rider weight and moving forward. And also that uh, unique to the Thoth deck of the three, is it three different magicians? Oh, there were three different drawings of that yes. same card. You wouldn't use all three in the divination. You would No, that that I know you wouldn't. But the fact that there was that many of the decks now even come with three, three magicians, all three. And I find that... Use the one that you like. I love this type of variance, but this is another link of the magician to Crowley. But the 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 magician card as the juggler, as the lowest card, because you know to have no value is not you don't zero has no value, so it's a placeholder. Right. So the fool is not the lowest card, but the, the magician is literally the lowest, and that's fascinating to me still. Like the whole journey of the fool first starts with what the fool thinking he's the magician. <laughs> the medicine we need in the world is still trying to figure out how to become the world. I think yeah, for Crowley, it's a creation. There's two, a couple ways you can look at it. But for him, it's sort of this creation narrative to some degree. So you have the fool as like preformed knot that is divinity. That's kind of a nothingness. And then you get the demiurge and the magician. The first person, mm -hmm. it's like the first light that thinks it's the creator, but it is, actually isn't the top god. But sure as hell thinks that it. it's like Jaldeboath or something. 
And hence every story that the Magus weaves is a lie. You know, it's a, it's an illusion. It's still the juggler. It's still the, it's a magician. Sure. But it's a magician that's weaving illusion. And what is he weaving? He's weaving Maya and that sort of thing. It's lowest because Maya's the, that's where you, that's where you start. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think in some of the other versions of the card you're talking about, there's a sort of, because if you look at who's in his cards and the ape of Thoth is in there, but it's also like Hanuman or something. And then you have this sort of, I don't know about the third one. One of them almost looks like Shiva or something like, or or some kind of, doing this kind of swastika dance yeah which is a whole like spelling out the aleph right yes here but though for the megas it would be bet in the thoftaro it's attributed to bet the house yeah it's levi in 56 it's in transcendental magic that he refers to the magician as aleph and that's a a shift that crowley makes yeah 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 right because aleph then ends up in crowley's as as the the fool because he wants to identify it with the negative yeah and it's there's a shift too right that aleph is a letter but not a letter and the the beginning but not the beginning yeah or like even I remember in Biblet in, in high school, the sound that a camel makes before it spits deep in its throat, which is, it's a glottal stop, but that was a very description that stank, stunk, stank with me. Yes, that stayed with me. The magician card in the right away, I like for own selfish reasons that it has the roses and the lilies, mm. which as far as a traditional kind of golden dawn and influence thing is the cult of aspiration. The idea that you can aspire and to and fulfill potential through through training through proper training that this is the beginning the understanding how the universe works is this beginning and it reminds me of the the off-quoted and off misquoted by me i expected the secrets of the universe and all i got was the hebrew alphabet the the thing is that any extant system in my opinion and this is i think in in following the kind of true initiate serve at any altar thing that any system that is extant in the sense that it is truly able to withstand a few generations of, of proving itself can equally explain everything that's the beauty of it right like we can find those parallels with things and that yes there's philosophies that go through it we can make things more complex or less complex but the cosmology is where we start right that this elemental weapons of our magician from the 20th century forward or the late this is something there right that it's it moves from just the tools of conjure and distraction of the roadside magicians just stealing your money and moves into the elemental weapons especially just the the patent and the dagger and the wand and the top and by the time yeah, it's yeah. The, rider, the rider weight of this infinity lemniscate that is that is floating with this number one above it does have the arm patterns of as above so below referencing hermetic maxims and whether they're translated correctly or not because that's a whole other arc a hole i went down there are so many translations of the emerald tablet previous to what like it was when i was first researching in the 90s and early 2000s but fucks with my brain a lot now anyway just the 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 white and the red there as he's a freaking maypole but the innocence there but clothed in red and the garland above that's there as well as this really telltale sign of just basic you, they couldn't use too many colors in the printing of the deck but that bright yellow background is so telling of the magician right it's just what it is it's a lot it's a lot to look at and it reminds me of the yellow the yellow wallpaper story amongst other things of like it's the color that you go insane with the quickest which is a myth but now that it's incorporated into common parlance no it's got a power of suggestion to it yeah exactly that you know it, it, it is a folk ascription and therefore for what it's worth it is what it is the magician in the Marseille deck uh, has an extra finger in many cards. And the, because uh, Hodorowsky draws attention to that in his reimagining. I don't know if you've, if either of you have read Hodorowsky's tarot book, but he, in his whole kind of, yeah. let me find the original publisher and go back and redo a Marseille deck that is in league with Hodorowsky's esoteric themes. 
but that it's a symbol of manipulating, reorganizing reality. Um, mm-hmm. And that the table he stands on has three legs rather than four uh, stands mm-hmm. in front of. And the fourth is outside the card, which from Hodorowski is going to be, uh, it's going beyond the possibilities of, and of our inculcated elemental nature and moving into the reality of action and choice through the discipline of the magician. That it, it gives the potential, which again, echoing from the writer weight, speaks to the cult of aspiration of the fulfill the potential. Or as Professor Gwendolyn Alkers told me pejoratively in college, and probably a theme throughout my life, of there comes a point where you have to stop rewarding potential. Ouch. Anyway, yeah, she was she got me though. She got me. Yeah, I think the magician is such a is a beautiful one and a pain in the ass card for those of us that do card readings, because if the person is a magician and the magician card comes up, they can't help but see themselves. Yeah. And that's always an interesting side of it of like the, you know, what is the, what is the magician as the cross? What is the meaning as the thing that bars you that is that is obstructing you your progress right now? What is the magician as your foundation? What is the magician as your crown? What is the magician as your past? What is the magician as your future? Your eyes, the places that they see and what are those things like And when we're talking a spread of tarot, which is a much more recent kind of interpretation of cards in this way. But the idea of that like the medicine you need, right? Like maybe the magician is like, we got to wear it to start. And then we're going to figure out how to move through it. We, this is where we start. And I think about those elemental tools. Of, it's not untrue that a lot of people are really like, whoa, golden dawn shit. That's the shit. And I'm not knocking golden dawn shit, but a lot of it can be really beautiful ritual, which gives rise to ceremonial magic revival in like a huge, more explosive way. Sure. But is it the, it's like when um, uh, Satanists or Luciferians only focus on the rebellion not what happens after yeah. the fall or anarchists only focus on tearing down things. And you're like, but what happens after? What systems are you going to put in place to help after? Jump out the plane, worry about the parachute later. doesn't exactly actually work, but it makes you a good murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's ever the root tension with the magician is, like you said, what might crown you, what might cross you. And that's where we end up landing after this, this history of kind of making the juggler and then the conjurer and the magician more occulted and full of more elemental symbolism and removed from his environment as well. I find that a really interesting shift from earlier depictions of Mm. the guy with his his table at the market then becomes, then then by the uh, like 16th century, they're, they're shown like actively running their show or their game like the cup and the ball is also an actual shell game and there's there's other people they're like entertaining children or there's it seems people are in like a, a tavern or something so then once we get to marseille and those designs like he starts to become an individuated figure again and a paragon or an icon or a a, a set of things to aspire to right a figure that has mastery over these elements of the movement of reality uh, yeah and those it was nice going through what the earlier ones were. And so there's something to this, right, that, that we end with. We start with this idea of the the street entertainer and we end with the idea of the you know, the one who bends reality to his focus will or whatever, this ceremonial magician kind of tendency. And so we've got the, we talk about the a right side and the reverse side sometimes, right? We've got the notion of all the things that make you a successful traveling prestidigitator, right? Skillful, clever, alert, confidence, uh, a, a charisma that you need to survive on your wits and to like uh, talk or entertain people for a living or, 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 you know, fully creating your own destiny, whatever that is. Uh, and the flip side being, you know, snake oilery, you know, charlatanry, quackery, and the idea of like, are you bending? Are you, are you changing minds that then help people change their lives or are you distracting or simply juggling uh, their attention? Where's the, where's the glamour prefiguring in this conception? I feel like one of the important things like in the Thoth Tarot, he doesn't do reversals. You wouldn't do that in this card because for his conception, those are the same thing. 
Like they have to be. This Magus is the street juggler who is a fucking liar and yeah. a, he's going to take your money. You know, he's, he's going to swindle you, uh, but he's also the, you know, secretly the demiurge. And there's like this kind of weird thing that happened with the fool and the Magus where they share, share something where you look at the fool as like the court jester, the one who can tell the king, the only one who can tell the king through jokes, how he's screwing mm-hmm. up. And in mm-hmm. a way, the Magus has that same sort of power as the person who's creating illusions and ripping you off, but they're managing infinity. And so there's still that paradox of high and low to them in, in, in this conception. I was almost wanting to point out that I think for me, the Megas here, there's a quote from 777 where he says something to the effect, don't, you know, not an exact quote, but the, the Megas is the thing that most certainly the neophyte is not. Like he, The neophyte kind of hates him because of this. You know, he wants to be him, but he is not him. And it establishes this kind of Nietzschean slave master paradigm the reality is when both of these poles of the beginning magician and the magus you know the great successful magician is they have like an antagonistic relationship and ultimately one wants to transcend that desire to be the other in order to free themselves they have to go beyond the master slave relationship in a nietzschean sense so that's a really good link to, or at least I'm putting on that kind of, as we just entered the best sign of all, Aries, that the martial energy that's needed to, like the ram energy that's needed to start the seasons off, right, to kick the world out of winter, is also that kind of having just seen my goats go through this today, of the youngers looking to the elders like, I'm going to challenge him and one day I'm going to I'm going to be the big goat, and then you, but you're, it's part of a cycle, right? Which speaks in some ways to the geomantic figure, right? The fiery martial energy, although I should have checked if Al personally ascribes Puer to, to Mars again. I'm sorry. But that the sword, <laughs> and I also know that you're fine with saying, oh yeah, a few people do. But but that uh, the, the martial energy that it is to, to, to look at something that you ascribe, as, aspire to, um, and feel both the attraction and the destruction towards that thing, right? The antagonism and the attraction that is existing mm-hmm. in everything that we are not currently that can happen, especially with that impulse that is Oh, the magical desire that that can happen so much for people around puberty is where a lot of people really tap into their study of magic begins somewhere in puberty as early teens to that kind of budding time when you're coming into your own and there's more agency and what is this or I, that part of it is so fascinating to me. And where is, it's definitely... Part of that, I would think. Yeah, I think so. It's we talk a lot about Puer, and it's it's a martial figure, and it's said to be good for all things to do with war, to do with like conflict, to do with like competition, and that can include like team sports. It, it's it's fiercely wearing its gang colors and things like that. But it's also like common for Puer to, in spite of all of its like lariness and its braggadocio and its like boys will be boys stuff. It's 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 also said to be like good for love as well. It's it is a romantic figure in a way, and it's uh you know it's not necessarily everyone's idea of romance. But there's a <laughs> running up to someone and punching him in the arm. You mean it's oh, not romance? Classic Aries uh, flirting there. Yeah, yeah. But it's a version of it, right? It's definitely you know the the love that hurls molotovs from a burning barricade. Right, it's got hot activist vibes, as uh, along with a number of other things. Right, falling in love is punk as fuck, etc. And so this idea of it being a search for this this explosive externalizing, also being a, a potential search for a connection, is something that like is framed in in its in its form of like why it has three singular or, or active or activating points in 
via air and earth and has a yeah a absent water right it is yeah, the yeah, the rail and all those kinds of lovely grail kind of things. I was just thinking about that as you were talking of like, you know, the thing with Pluer is that it's not Autodraconus. We're just slightly above it. Like those two little balls are hanging in the air, which also reminded mm-hmm. me of the magician's hand holding the wand interestingly mm-hmm. as another visual cue. But the but this idea of, you know, extending it to their, their homoforms of the Odu and things like this of by the time we go from what would be the equivalent of Irete or, or Merinde Lagoon and, and drop to Ogunda, that we go from something that has the potential for a lot of destruction, but can also for a lot of discipline and treaties and pacts and making sure everything is assertive as opposed to aggressive. Um, mm-hmm. And then by the time those balls fall down and there's nothing left, in, it's all, there's nothing grounding it anymore. Then that's where Ogunda is just like full force war, right? It's like, you have to guide that machete that or Ogun will destroy the world like the same force that creates it will destroy it and that's mm-hmm. like there's there's just nothing to hold on to it it's all the things that are movable by the time we go to Kata Draconis of just yeah. there's no hand anymore it's just like all the elements that can move water air and fire are moving together yeah. and there's nothing to stop it ever and that's it. I think about that just because you see the that last chance of we're getting heavier like there's mm-hmm. a chance for things being less grounded but it's water that got dropped and we're still, we still got a little bit of like earth to kind of keep where a little bit like maybe it's the nature of the fire and the earth that couldn't spring forward. Or like I was thinking about this with the Kayak's Herbarium post of, about the Cuckoo Day of the origin of April Fools, right? And that spring itself comes from the lands of fairy, like the summer lands that are there. The, the, the warm air is like the other lands starting to crack open again through winter. And that it has to do with like, I guess spring is not consensual. I was thinking about this a lot today. Like, it's a common meditation, right? Of like the animal kingdom of like, man, my my three little goat boys are just, they're humping everything. I was like, you are a month and a half old. Leave your mother alone. Oh, um, God. Yeah. And each other. <laughs> just like, please stop. I go here now? This guy's here now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> rehearsing, rehearsing. Yeah, again, Pua has very much that certain, I don't want to say innocence, because it's also the figure that connotes all sorts of robbery and uh, mugging violence and unpleasantness but there's a certain like kind of oafish purity <laughs> to it almost a lot of the time like it's a big barbarian baby like that's gonna come in and be a big barbarian baby it's not the full weight of fire's destruction loosed on the earth like cowder like you're saying this it's held it's a source of fire that's like the lit match that might cause the explosion of uh, or, the, or the damage of, of cowder or might be put to the flammable uh, spreading fire of Inquisitio or, or or used to light the forge of Fortuna Major, but is itself cardinal. It's beginning, It's but also therefore fleeting. Yeah, that's uh, fleeting also, nature, thing, right? Because if you have no water, the first thing you think of is a desert, right? It's that you can't see the oasis thing of, mm-hmm. of what that is. is you, can, you can keep moving and you will find water. Right. You can survive through Puer. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And... and and Pua's like uh, uh, remediations can can invert what is what is it, its inversion albus right can can, yeah. can deal with that introversion that bloodlessness or that like stress on decorum and the world of like uh, uh, of ideas in your mind and can caution or, or or marshal some confidence boldness and courage to actually like yeah to walk through and find out and I think past the like without describing because again you know how I get I, I want to talk about so much with Odu, but I don't want to, one, get in trouble, and two, <laughs> speak and be like, there's so much context that has to be there. But in the order of, the standard orders of Ifa, because there's between, there's three or four standard orders, and then there's probably a dozen past that, 
with minor adjustments, right? Because there's only 16 figures. But almost universally, you're going to have a bunch of Odu in the beginning, starting with usually, so the equivalence of what would be Via, then Populous. And then some versions there where it's often and being the primary four figures that then explode out from there. And then there are other ones that mirror other Rommel traditions that might be more closely that came into Nigeria. Because we know that there's this there's this evolution here that is outside of how Ifa explains itself now. But we can see the historical evolution coming into the first millennium and merging with other systems of divination and and oral orality that were there. Because there are praise poems in certain towns that, that cite the year and the king that was there when Ifa came into their town, meaning it wasn't always there. But that's a whole other story. And there's a lot of stuff on YouTube that's really highly controversial about that of people yelling, you don't get to tell me this. Our town has always done it this way. I remember I knew your father, that type of stuff. But... In the order, and why it's interesting, I guess, is that when by the time you get to Ika, which is like 13 uh, in the shells, or which would be Rubius, it, it matches all of a sudden, because Dilogun order is different from Ifa order, and it all of a sudden you see 13, 14, 15, 16 equivalents in order, mm-hmm. and Ika through Irete. And then the last two signs follow the mythology of, uh, is the youngest Odu, and then Ofun comes in in Ifa because it was supplanted by a Geogbe and is now container of phenomena itself, is now the last Odu, even though it is technically spiritually the eldest. And that is partially because of the youth energy, even though it's a different Odu, of Ejiogbe kind of supplanting. That's part of what Via, the equivalent, is doing. It's saying, oh, no, no, out with the old. You know, this is part of the, re- the cycle of replacement. But what I was thinking about was that um, Irete, or Puer's uh, equivalent, uh, has its immediate follow is one of the ones we associate with water and flow, of the bo- of blood in the body and civilization and as a remedy to Puer or something that Puer brings. Because there's the what's the logic of these orders? I finding and meditating on those things is why you can, you know, read effectively because you're creating these things, usually in the context of training and learning why they're why these things are associated with this because Ifai is so extensive and this is where this minute, the key that turns the lock on this town is found in this Odu when it's oriented like this type of specificity. But the ideas here of Puer's heat leading to Oshe and the flow of civilization after all of the other Odu have spoken, because technically Ofun's influence is in through all of that already, right? That I don't know. There's something interesting about that, that the heat gives rise to uh, the highest shelf number, 16 shells, or its Odu equivalent in Ifa of Irete gives rise next in the order to Oshe. It's something interesting. And again, for all of who was externalizing of its of its feelings of its like disproportionate emotional yeah disproportionate reaction it itself doesn't uh, usually it it reflects like arguments and and anger and things like that exactly and then leading to if we're talking about equivalents like O'Shea's uh equivalent of Amicia like the, the 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 loss of the inhibitions the spilling out of feelings the overwhelming or the uh enfeebling feelings rather than the explosive expression of them yeah oh my god you just made me think something that i feel stupid about sorry for the exclamation so amicio right is oshe which is followed by ofun which is its opposite meaning acquisitio so everything spills and then is contained in creation and i never thought about that before (laughs) that's hot that's hot right so all of the other get through everything all the heat is dispersed Oshun effectively comes to save the world in Oshé. And then it's like, we have to contain that in something. So uh, Big Daddy that knows everything, we're going to put you there and replace you with someone younger who likes to rule. Scoop you up. Oh, okay. So that was all heretical Ifa. I apologize. But at the same time, I'm going (laughs) to use it. I'll use this in my acting just fine. 
Um, <laughs> for Puer, connect over to tie it to the other stuff. It's one of the, Puer is one of the, the title, one of the knock signs in AA. And it's, interestingly, it's as a sign, it's usually the dude with the right hand up and then the, the phallus erect with the left hand, you know. Uh, and they usually attribute it to either Chem or uh, Mentu. So you, again, you have like Mentu, especially the heat, right? The attribution of Mentu to heat from the sun, sort of like a manifestation of the heat, the scorching rays of the sun, and generally seen as a war god. So you sort of have that where Aries kind of association. And this is also like the sun of the grade for the Gebura, the six equals five grade of AA. So you're looking at Mars again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're dealing with uh, all the, the fieriness of Mars. Uh, yeah. And in this case, though, weirdly, also we brought up, we're talking about boy, right? We're talking about a youthful energy. They give this to the letter in, so moon and Scorpio. So you're getting the sort of the sexuality of it included, not just the beating them up and burning them down, but, and maybe even like holding some secrecy there. So scorpionic qualities associated with these things. So fishy, even fishy stuff. Yeah. I, I, I can't have to invoke that kind of golden dawn changing of the, the scorpion's venom to the, to the ascent of the, of the eagle, right? That that this is uh, right. the, the tetramorphs and things coming in there, um, which is speaks to the magician as the, the evolution of the self, the start of the evolution, not the end point, that the rebellion against the perceived error of the demiurge is not the thing that we hold the whole spirituality on or that the any point of, of, of the insipidus, right? The, the, the Molotov cocktail is not what, what you want to go to bed with. So you got like scorpion, serpent, and eagle, or phoenix, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Scorpion being the kind of rebellion that, you know, well, if I can't have it, I'll burn the whole damn place down in the ring of fire and sting myself to death versus the serpent that keeps its venom as a tool and sheds its skin. It's willing to change. And then the, you have the Eagle who wets, not a feather, which might be a great metaphor for, of pagan baptizing crown, not just speaking over people, but like in the kind of Kimbanda de Rais and Kimbanda, uh, traditional, uh, schools of thought of that. This is directly parallel to pre-initiation initiation and, even seeding the issue and, and moving for those things, but that's not guaranteed equivalent that we have this relationship with every single spirit we come across, that there is a pagan relationship. Um, and that is because in, in Portuguese, they use Pagao as unruly pagan. In Spanish, you get the wonderful anti-Semitic Jewish as the equivalent of Julio. But uh, isn't, a bad, isn't a bad Anglo equivalent in, in that specific context. Yeah. Not in terms yeah. of the people of the Heath or any like tied to Northern tradition specifically, but like the sense of, of, of a, Pagan as a as as unruly, yeah. Which of course still brings me back to the divergence of Karen Armstrong fields of blood and talking about like civilization is specifically about the militaristic complex being developed to protect agricultural excess and stratified wealth across down to peasantry in order to make people rich. But that is literally what civilization means: is how can I oppress you to make grain for me so that I can live like a king and thus drive civilization forward? Which is yeah, a whole other thing. But within this context, then of the metaphors, then of. Uh, every, a relationship with a spirit when we first meet it, like it's, who knows, it could be everything. It could be Satan, God, everything, every, the most powerful spirit you've ever come across. You are drunk on the knowledge of what that spirit is. There's no bounds. They are living through you and you're living through them. And that type of relationship is really important to go through. But at a certain point, it is can be very destructive and unsafe. And so that's why there's stop gaps and training and, and traditions, which are like, hey, let's see what this is. It is not necessarily the next thing is in, in this language would be to baptize which is 
Yes, about washing and creating a space and a relationship and things like that. In the strictest sense, it is referencing like church baptism. You went from completely unruly to like, now you are entering civilization. You have the potential. You have a potential, which we might reward. <laughs> um, that's, but, yeah, that's, that's, that's worth pointing out in terms of where exorcism tech is employed in, in conjuration as well. And the parts mm-hmm. that are about A, making like baptizing the incense or what have you, or sprinkling holy water as a, a baptism of name as function. I name you this yeah. thing that's going to do this thing. It's also- uh, which, which brings us back to our Martyrs of Ostia and Alexander the First, also. But yeah, so baptism is, it isn't unfair to call it a form of chaining, which people will say. That like, you know, you're, you're saying, uh-uh. But really what it is, is if we think about it this way, so if we think about our, our, our mind or our soul picture and our house as a similar thing, I'm going to have a very different reaction to someone that I've just met for the first time and I'm out at a club partying or at a bar or at a conference and be like, oh my God, this person is amazing. I might not invite them to stay in my house right away. And if I do, they have to understand that I do things in my house a certain way Mm -hmm. and that this is where the toilet paper is and this is what you're expected to do. This is where the washing machine is. You know, please don't break down my walls. Don't set things on fire. Things that you would normally think that people know shouldn't necessarily be taken for granted with anybody, but- it is a similar manner that if you're going to invite someone into your spiritual framework as and, and form a more consistent relationship, that we might want to understand what those rules are, stated and unstated, which also has us be like, well, they should know that. Why should they know that? Especially something that is non-corporeal. And then moving towards, so this relationship is often has a plateau feeling to it of the person goes from the, all of the power that they feel with something to suddenly like, where'd it go? I don't even feel it anymore because right now you're not in the club. This person's snoring in your guest room, and we're still figuring out what things are. Moving through that to a crowned phase, which is different from the terminology we would give it in Orisha, but that the spirit itself is now, again, independent of the operator or the makumbero or whoever it is, but that you are able to understand what is expected of each other and can act without having to check each other's moves constantly. That you don't have to say, no, no, spirit, you can't do that. I have to tell you exactly what to do. The spirit can act in concert with you, knowing what it is that you are trying to do and that it is now, perhaps in some ways, it has. there's no more chains, but there is a relationship of familiarity that's built up. And within many traditions, one of the things that I know that we had talked even with, I remember it was one of the first times I would talk with Jake extensively at, in Cornwall, was we're talking about generational packs and lineage packs. What it is when some operator that is your initiators, initiators, initiator made packs with certain spirits or demons that they then pass to their spiritual offspring and move down. You now enter in with certain packs to that lineage. You now have access to those packs that were made long before you were even born. And that is similar to what many traditions are dealing with, whether it's Orisha and you're dealing with the fact that Orisha are said to have physical descendants upon this world in the same way that not just the recognition that like Caesar had a certain charisma and therefore Venus is a natural ancestor for the Julii, but that maybe here in this way that Ogun founded this town and his descendants are here and they taught people what, how to call and how to work with his, that greater energy that is there. In those cases, it's like a covenant with a people that might start out as a small people, but if it were to continue long enough. Yeah. Those packs which are just think, covenants. Which is why it, it's uh, it, it brings up the concept of like, you'll hear it in the Orisha community that like your Orisha work faster for your godchildren than they do for you. Because to their godchildren, that's God. That's all, all, all the, all Obatalas are in your godfathers or godmothers Obatala. And for your God, for the person who's Obatala that is, 
you're like, no, that's I know that about the lie. These are the signs it gave. Here's the name. Here's where it, it's a very different relationship. So it's like you always say, God, like, hey, pray for my money too when you talk to them. Like pray for you know because it's a, it's a, it's. But this is you find parallels about this in yeah. in the quote unquote idols of the ancient world too. That the temple priests are like str- struggling to get something done, but it's for the, that idols performing miracles for people that come. And is this just faith? Is this just the chaos tool of like belief is being put into that? And therefore the person believes and the people that are creating the sausage are like, well, I don't, is it the same for me? No, because I know what went into that. I don't know. There's lots of things to think about, but I do think about how this affects the greater thing of a temple. If I go to my godmother's Orisha and I'm talking to her and I'm praying for my godmother, whatever it is, but that, that her Orisha, her Yamaya is, is now in charge of all of the God family you know, by extension, and is now, it's a generational pact that is the minute that I have entered into the fictive kinship is now honorary. This is my spiritual mother, that I now have a relationship with her spirits, not just my own. And that this interconnected, very tangled web is an interesting thing to navigate. And certainly echoes just as much as I heard the kind of psychological thelema, right, that goes on of like, oh, no, the 72 of the Ars Paulina are aspects of your mind, and you can baptize them, tie them off, and they won't have any more effect on you. doesn't mean that the demon's gone from the world, just from your, its influence on you, which was like a pretty big topic to do. And now people fight against that. They're like, does that mean you're never going to gamble again because you tied off Ouroboros? And that's, what is it? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> you know good, call, said- good call on the scorpion and snake and phoenix, though. That's, I never compared those to that phase of progression. I would almost extend that to what you were saying a second ago about the God family and, the, you know, how does this work, even to objects. Because I, I was thinking about, like, maybe more like folk traditions and a lot of people who come around shrines and they're like, there's a pack of Marlboros and like a Coca-Cola on here. How in the hell is that sacred? And it's, it can be really like shocking to some people and not just as an offering, but like imagining what I'm really referencing is like the sense that I think most people have that could be put off as nostalgia. So, for example, like, why do you feel more magic-y with a kerosene lantern than an electric light bulb or whatever? Yeah. I used to, used to pull that off as simply nostalgia or sort of exoticism applied to time. But I also think there may be like a real mediation of the dead there. And that comes with the Pax thing you're talking about. Yeah. So like if you have a priest or priestess in a line uh, like a teacher or something in a certain era, they have these really strong associations of things they've given to their spirits. Their spirits make those associations. They die. They then become the medium. They're going to have a nostalgia for the stuff that they did. And I would imagine that they would respond to that in a way, in the same way that you think about certain issues of Pomogiras and they have these antiquated images and desires of or clothing or whatever. It's like, you know, they could, I suppose, update. If you lived in that time, the that particular hat still has a kind of je ne sais quoi about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the spirit recognizes it. The, the priests of the time recognize it. And then now it takes on another dimension for you to harmonize with that, you know? But older doesn't necessarily mean better, but it does mean that it's potentially been more beta tested and you have access to more ghosts that have access to more expertise about that thing. 
at the very right. Yeah. Or yeah, you're kind of bringing it back to ontology there, right? Of the necessity of not just the hands that touch it, the generational pack, but also the weight that we know, like when a spirit is used to being called in a certain way, that like it will put on, it just knows that it needs a hat. And like it's coming down, it's like, where's my hat? Oh, this was this is an interesting one. Thank you. And you put it on, they're like, huh. Or like, you know, an Arisha comes down in a drumming and you have to get them up, up on Willow to put it to drape on them. And the Arisha's like, this color, why would you give me this? Like they they have this, it's the preferences that come down, or you know, we we've joked about this before, but like how many puntos cantados uh in, in Umbanda Kimbanda, you know, are like praise to insert spirit name here. You when you come to the Tejero, you do good things. You do good things when you come in the Tejero. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's like, I, am I reminding you that you do good things, or am I telling you? By the way, <laughs> <laughs> when you come in this temple, you do good things. I creating the reality yeah. of which I am allowing you into my house, and that the, there you have, I guess, in the terms, the Ponto Cantado being a form of baptism of the spirit as it comes into this world. And remember how we do things here. Like remind your manners. Of it's an interesting side of things, and if something doesn't mind its manners, it needs to go quickly to the side. Yeah, and it passed the Chestertonian. Is that a, is that the right adverb? Chester Chesterton, right? A democracy of the dead. Al, is that is am I, the t- tradition is the democracy of the dead, or, or some version of that quote that I will misquote every time and be surprised that it is not as eloquent when he says it as my memory of him saying it. Apologies, Mr. Chesterton. But yeah, there's the notion of romanticism and nostalgia that can go, which we have to understand our own tendencies towards Orientalism and primitivism, which can be wrapped up in huge amounts of our privilege and our internalized racism and classism and things like this. Then when we ask, when we interact with certain traditions, we want it to look a certain way as opposed to what is the necessity of what is being done of like my confronting with my own, like I had never seen a plastic deli container be used in a ritual way. And I need my gourd. I need my gourd. And then I'm watching a documentary of about the La Priest and they're using a plastic deli container to go to the river. I was like, it is perfect. I mean, it barely breaks when you drop it. It's going to last a lot longer than the gourd. It just jars with my thing of one of the advantages to extant traditions is that everything still has to be contained that, but that on an airplane that someone like giving you instructions of where to go in the case of an emergency should be contained in Odu should be, there should be a God that you can address for that. If it is a functioning system and not just pastoral nostalgia. And I say that out of of spite towards really good friends who I still see that their spirituality is more of an escape and a more of a hearkening to a fantasy life rather than how you confront your boss at work is part of your spirituality. How you deal with the person cutting you off in traffic is part of your spirituality. And it's funny because I thought about this with April 10th and you brought up poor with the war and like the third chapter of the book of the law is very different than the first two. And I am a God of war is coming in real strong here, which, and Oh yeah. So one thing we haven't as a jumping over part back to, to so we were talking about the third chapter there, the peacock angel. It's another one of those places of insider versus outsider perspectives. It ties into what you were just saying a second ago, watching for either Orientalism or the desire for ancient nostalgia. Because, yeah. we, you know, it's Crowley who makes this association that Ivos is Melek Taos and that the same, that the old God once worshipped in Sumer. And that might be a part of, you know, misunderstandings or it might not be. But I think it's really interesting because of how this marginalized group of Kurds is pretty much demonized. I mean, some of the earliest 
texts are all calling them devil worshipers, but they would absolutely and do absolutely fucking hate that. They don't want to be yeah. called that. That's not what they're about. And so similarly with Ivos, it's like, well, Crowley really wants to call it the devil. And yet, if you look, you know, into some of his little associations here, it may as well be Yahweh. So what's going on? Again, insider, outsider, the peacock angel, you know, we have this association where he got it is just such a mystery. This is something that happened to be in like Sir Richard Francis Burton or something. I'm not sure. I haven't read this, but I know there is a essay by Tobias Churton that was done in the Aleister Crowley and Western esotericism (coughs) where he talks about Crowley and the peacock angel and that the relationship to Ivos in the book of the law. Some people really didn't like it. Some people did. I don't know. So I haven't read it yet. I don't know if it's any good, but I was trying to track down some sources for this, like what texts he would have had access to. And if you look, um, you know, the Black Book and the Book of Revelation from the Yazidi were available, translated, though there is enormous amounts of controversy surrounding those translations, whether they're real, how old they are, how much it was already had Western modification or was there maybe some malefic intent into some of the translation so one of the one of the older books i have so i think what i I guess what i'm trying to say is i suspect crowley was interested in that association partially of this idea of ancient sumerian devil worshipers of which he would have been like ooh, and then also the fact that it's a very solar seven four fold kind of celestial attribution of angels and messengers and that the rough time of it at this the holy day where it touches the earth is depending on whether you're using the gregorian or the julian calendar it's within a week or a couple days of the reception of the book of the law so right so he gets this idea of the peacock angel the devil of sumeria and all that stuff and i think it's partially a slander against the yazidi i have this book by alphonse mingana who's like a syrian theologian a lot of people also don't like this book, but this is like a much older. This would be I'm trying to remember if this was in like the 1920s or 1930s when this was out. But he's quoting a lot of the books that are influencing the Yazidi backdrop. And I thought it was really interesting that one of the Gnostic saints, he sort of Mingana here sort of attributes an influence to the term Yazidi or the people of Yezid to mm-hmm. uh, Bardasanes of all people, and saying that in this area of the sort of Syrian area. There was what are they called Dyson Dysonists, or if I get this right, basically the people following. I don't, know, I don't want to call it Dysonist, but it's something along those lines. Anyhow, more or less meaning, you know, followers of Bardasanes, and I, I think that's interesting because we find uh, Bardasanes as one of the Gnostic saints in, in Crowley's, you know, Gnostic Mass. Maybe another spot where he's attempting to smush these things together to maybe mm-hmm. give Ivos an, an existence outside of his own experience, like a way of saying that the thing has been around or wanting to claim that in some way. Doesn't he in that list also, is that the same description where it talks about like he, he is also a man in so much that he is wearing human flesh to be the medium of something past the human flesh. It's, it's, it's interesting because this is it's the there's so many contradictions in what he's talking about the same thing and it's meant i feel to kind of thunder perfect mind you out of it of the bike of by doing this broad sweeps of the same things Crowley's often accused of let's do the most extreme things and somehow ios is the great beast but also the ancient god of sumer who's also this you know melitaos who's often these other things and is melitaos kind of i would i would be curious here like is this kind of like the inclusion by the time you get to someone like Levey? 
who just starts incorporating the names of anything that he could incorporate into the lists of like names of, of the devil, including Dumbala. And you're like, Dumbala is like the very opposite of what we would consider like a, sh- a shaitan. But it's just one of those things, it's otherness that gets invoked itself through this list of names. That's initially what I would have thought is that because of the slanderous association of shaitan with Melek Taos, that Crowley would have jumped on that, right? But well, also there wasn't the- that much written too, right? There, no, like, not at all. And certainly like the between the Black Book and the Book of Revelation, both are contested, as you said. And then the, you have the thought that the city only create these books so that they can stop being persecuted because there is a prohibition against persecuting people of the book. So it's not a religion unless there is a written text in Islam. And that, and specifically, it's retur- re- specifically that Quranic verse is felt to be interpreting of don't persecute Jews or Christians. But in addition, you know, don't persecute Muslims. But that doesn't that's it, that gets extended. Like, what does that mean when we encounter other traditions? And yeah, by the time we get to Yassidi and like, I remember like, you know, Idris Shah quoting, and that's the 60s by the time we get there, of just like saying that there is a cult of peacock angel worshiping people in London that is there. And you're like, it's to what extent? Like the Yassidis don't accept converts. And (laughs) this this becomes a thing of like, who's appropriate this now? To also the inclusion of Melitaus in neo-paganism and specifically the Anderson theory yeah. tradition of witchcraft, which is this just an otherness that's invoked? Is this a foreign god form that comes in or that wears this 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 illusory body of the blue god of the peacock angel for Victor Anderson, who's, you know, this in the in, by the time you get to the 70s and 80s, anybody who is inspired by Gardner's vision and maybe Cochrane's vision, although that was not as much known at that time, except to small circles in, in the UK, but that would try and prove that they were anything but Wicca and perform add into the universalism of this growing religion that was developing le- legitimately. It was the open sourcing of anything. I just, I'm curious yes. how much of it really, not that there might not be a connection because there can always be a connection, but I think there is a legitimacy in crying to or appealing to the literary device of listing otherness and listing not salacious but scandalous names of things that are foreign in in, in- I, I feel like some of that's there and i think that's an element that's probably what sparked the interest right the investigation was oh wait what but then you look at the creation story okay there, there's a couple of things that show up and i've seen this in other places i can't fully talk about but there's the specific story of not bowing to adam because uh, Melek Taos is commanded by God not to bow when the other angels bow. And that this is interpreted as a positive thing among the Yazidi, right? This is like showing that he submitted to the commandment of God and is in no way a fallen angel, is, is one of the creatrixes of the people and, you know, of the, of the world. And is a very, very positive life-giving solar rainbow, you know, power of, of, the, of the flourishing of the earth, almost like Al-Kabir or something. Like, this is good stuff. But the same story happens with Iblis, and it's a bad thing. And so the neighbors around the Yazidi, of course, are like, you're actually worshiping Iblis. And they're like, I I promise you we're not. That story would have been available to Crowley, and that conflict would have been well known to him, even in his time. There was plenty of that information. It wasn't only the Yazidis that had that belief that Iblis was something, that that there were many Sufi heretical sects that, that in the same way that, you know, changing the Shahada to be like, I am God is already heretical by normal standards. But of course, when you're looking at from the Sufic maxims, then like, yeah, don't destroy the unity by separating yourself from God. It's the same thing with, with, with Iblis, like, right. So we had a lot, we had a a great talk with that about, with that, with Jay, Mm -hmm. but I can't talk at all. So yeah, I know. I mean, it's just, 
that it's that conflation of that story and all the permutations of it that certainly that and the lack of pronouncing sh and t in the same word they will not say the word shaitan that, it's, that but, became like a slander to them that oh why won't you say it and then yeah. is it because you have a secret you know what i mean yeah <laughs> no they're just being respectful Curiously, there's a there's a parallel here to like in the beginning of Meetings with Remarkable Men, which is Gurdjieff's second book. So he wrote his secrets in no, in weird novels as opposed to anything explicitly instructional. But he's he was turned on to the magic world by the fact that children in his town were trapping a, a Yasidi child in a circle of chalk and that the child would not leave the circle of chalk and they were tormenting him. So he was thirsty and hungry and for what erases the chalk marks so the Yasidi boy can return home. This is there's definitely an appeal to the fact that Yasidis are a mystery cult that does not take outsiders. And so anybody purporting to be have secret knowledge of Yasidi rights and or otherwise that isn't that, you know, you know well, how did you do this? Because you're not Kurdish. They don't accept converts. It's one of those things that like it will always right. be a source of mystery. And like, no, Yasidis are always going never going to comment to be like, oh, yes. We believe these books are, are real or not because, like, yes, they're attributed to one of their saints who's believed to be like an avatar of Tawasimelek, but it's they don't have to justify themselves to anybody because they don't accept converts. <laughs> so I yeah. think that it more than anything really irks the Western uh, mind of like the like the Protestant itch of like, what do you mean I don't get to know something? How dare you? <laughs> oh, <No>, totally. <laughs> so like <laughs> this totally to list Melek Tawas in that way. I don't necessarily think for by the time we get to like the, the Anderson Ferry tradition, I think they maybe inherited some of that kind of weight of that name by including it and probably post Idris Shah and things like that. But at the time of Crowley, it's just more of the like, it's playing on the Egyptian, like secrets, secrets. I have all the secrets of like, you know, let me, let me name drop Melek in here. Yes, but I think there's a little bit more, I would give him more credit than that only because if you brought the Sufi thing. So Crowley one claims to have been involved with the city Iasawa, right? Yeah, as far as right, and then on which is curiously, that, curiously, like let's just, just examine there. I saw that if I was drunk and said I was instead of I saw no one would think anything of it. It is pretty interesting because this is happening before the reception of the Book of the Law, so I think that yeah. is a possible thing. Uh, later, it's the master musicians of Jujuka where he's out there at the pan right that is like out in Morocco. There's a couple of of relationships here, but when you go through confessions, he has specific. Sikhs and other individuals who are training him and telling him stories. Now, this is on top of his reading Burton, lots of the solar phallicists who bring this up, you know, like we're talking about Forlong and a lot of these other dudes. There's a surprising amount of lore in those 19th century texts that I think most of us forget are even there. And whether now they may not be very accurate, but there's a lot of it. So it wouldn't have been the kind of thing that he just heard pray tell this spooky name and threw it in he has stories that give a theological reason why he wants to connect it similar to when you brought the sufi stuff the tawasin of uh, mansur al-halaj the same heresy or it's not really a heresy but people want it to be and see it that way like the same similar i guess you could say controversial take on the story of adam and iblis and all of that's in there and he crowley deeply He's very interested in that. And then there, there's also books that were popular at his time, Sir Walter Scott's The Talisman, that ascribe to the, the Saracen leader, you know, Salah Adin, uh, a Yazidi parentage, but also mm -hmm. claim that he's the son of the devil. And so for a person who really feels so attached to the devil, but believes the devil is something more 
than just a, a bad reaction to Christianity, but is deific. Yeah. He's doing the thing where, you know, kind of like when you see in the temple of set or something, right? We're like, it's not just the devil. It's like set. It's like, you're trying to say like, yeah, I get it. It's a devil. It's more than that. Yeah. Eshumor might have a statue of Baphomet, but it's way more than just that. So you're, yeah. you're sort of using these other cultural stories that you're associating it with to sort of magnify the unspeakable ancient and reality and complexity of this otherwise nameless power. There's a layer of ascriptions that are both cultural as well as personal for him as to why he would choose to include anything, because that's yeah. what any writer is going is want to do. I just think that there's a lot of speculation on Melitalos Tosimelek that that is totally a lot of people wanting to fill their specific agenda and have that kind of I have the secret that no one else does. And like, you yeah, know, unfortunately, it's, it's destructive. It hurts yeah, those and, people. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's the Mishatrish even says specifically the angel that they think Melakthalos is connected to, which is not Iblis. And it's Azazil. Yeah. So it, it's like, this is the angel of Sunday. And there's also Mandaean traditions around Azazil and things that we can go into, like that, that Azazel, Azazil, Azazel, all yeah. these different permutations, not Azazel, uh, according to Al. I don't want to make Al mad. <laughs> it's 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 when people confuse uh, conflate Azazel and Zazel, the spirit of Mars, with Azazel and that whole uh, angelic, full and angelic. Like th- those names shift all the time as the vowels, the consonants, and the people speaking them do. But no, the ruling spirit of Saturn is none of those spirits. That's that's right. I, I remember we talked about it. I was just like. Mm, I will get mad at me for misquoting him too. That'll work too. <laughs> I may have sorry, a slide. Sorry, doctor. I'm sorry, doctor. Now I can just think of like all the '90s posters I saw in in uh, oh, Bodhi Tree was a good uh, metaphysical store in West Hollywood. Posters of Melitonos and, and people's art artwork interpretation of it, and it's always. The pick the god of a people you you don't know the language of or never met somebody from, and that's going to be your your new inspirational god uh, is very nice. <laughs> Somehow you have a deep connection to them. But that aside, okay, yes, beautiful, fascinating thing to study iconography as it comes out. Also through sensationalism, like in in the UK, Gurdjieff groups being connected to your city worship as well. But that's because he talks about them in his books. So everybody done claiming your city work. Bedeviled and bedeviling orientalisms and their inspirations. Oh yeah. Shadows. Yeah. Look to the east. Look to the east. And certainly we will find it. The Puerian audacity that is all your gods are belong to us. But well uh, it's, yeah. it's even actually it's even worse than his if you what was it Fabre de Olivier or I don't know how to say it, but was the etymologist that Crowley was really into. And he gives these long strings of deities based on like dentals and sibyl, like basically parts of speech, right? That he breaks up like shoe news like whatever however they do it there's like a long list of deities that are associated solely on linguistic supposed linguistic connections and then they get associated with the north or the south or it's pretty wild and again that's like another one of those places where people are blowing off the reality behind it because someone played with etymology one time it's it's (laughs) the kind of weird framework that allows in this kind of i'm not versed enough so I'm, this is a longer conversation, perhaps, a, you know, a return visit. The But the knowledge or the fallacy at surface level, let's say, of ceremonial magic 
as it moves towards its ceremonial magic as a world religion, quote unquote, that necessarily presumes that the historicity of the Judeo-Christian scriptures is actually history. The garden is no longer mythic, but is also historic. That there is, you know, our measurement of time is based off of a false description of Jesus' birth, but that the that ultimately the universe is still a modified version of the Judeo-Christian as the norm from which you can deviate a little or add heresy to, to uh, allow for more confluence of and incorporation of more associations, correspondences, and otherwise. But that it is an interesting side of it that, I don't know, that still gets to me, right? They're like, we're still going to be studying Lurianic Kabbalah as like the foundational unifying ladder of ascriptions and thinking of this heavily just because I just did this article on correspondences and the history there and the jab that Crowley, first off, Crowley supposedly wrote 777 in a week um, because it was from memory, because he had memorized things in the Golden Dawn and then kind of added just a few things. But the I, this training and things that happens there, our whole history of correspondences is based on astrological magic, but the shift happens, which was combined with medicine and every other science, but the shift towards um, the kind of occult revival of the 19th and 20th century starts putting everything towards a Kabbalistic framework for everything, which still has planetary possibilities, but shifts it dramatically towards this Christian interpretation of Kabbalah, yeah. which then assumes no, no, like that hermetic everything... Kabbalah and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and the file effects cosmology. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that's fascinating itself because that's a whole other topic about correspondences, but I'll deliver my talk first and then have more ideas too. But yeah, I think luckily, like at least for Thalamites, they're not really stuck in that. If they go through, what he's really doing in 777 it's not basing an entire cosmology on the literal take of the of either the tree of life or Lurianic kabbalah nor all of those things are convenient uh, uh as sort of a postmodern structure by which you can catalog your phenomenology and you you almost have to when you read like his stuff it's not a cult and you're like look He's talking about Fichte and Hegel and Berkeley and, you know, like his cosmology, the ontology that he's dealing with is pure. It's just really modern. And he's not trying to shoehorn in his own simple heretical antinomian devilry Christianity. It's these things are they're there because they're a part of the Western psyche. And they have these are the words that we've come to know these forces by. But he's trying to get you to find a way to categorize what's happening to you as well, not just him, but you as well in an organized way uh, and using things like the Kabbalah and ciphers and whatnot to organize it, but not to make it a literal place like the Garden of Eden. Here we are, you know. It's one thing you do bring up on the final, my my self-imposed chains of stop bringing up every tangent that you think of. But um, <laughs> the same thing that, that Chumley does, right? That in the kind of, a Zorshuk reference of, of naming yourself, using your magical name in the very rituals that people are, are possibly duplicating. But that idea that specifically within Crowley's text of naming yourself as him and acting as if you're him is an interesting side of like that, you know, that, that Iwas becomes your guardian angel through this magical assumption of the, of the magician of, you know, mm-hmm. to don yourself in the card of Crowley yeah. in order to complete the act, which is an interesting thing because it's not at a certain point, I always wonder, like, do people ever change it and just put their own magical name? I know there's times where you do, do. use your own, yeah. but there's other times where it seems like that doesn't happen. And like, I always think about that in the cross comparison with Chumley of like people that I know that are really trying to enter into a sabbatic current, whether or not they have anybody connected to cult of Sabbatai or not, but looking at Chumley's works and never changing Chumley's magical name 
for their own. <laughs> and that what the yeah. confusion is there, I mean, like, this should be something we should examine right away. Like, why are you using his name? And it, it takes yeah. on a different thing now that those discussions can be had posthumously because Chumbly is no longer with us. So what is it to take on a dead magician's name is a whole well, other thing. You talked about it earlier. Yeah, exactly. You brought it up. Um, yeah. Packs. But like, it's, that's yeah. Yeah. Packs. <laughs> yeah. But if that's all you're doing, you're a servant to, it would be the difference that you could call in the name of Moses and so you avoid the car wreck and maybe that'll work. But if you want to be Moses, you're going to start having to get God to talk to you by your name. Well, I mean, it's certainly all, so much of the lists, right, are, are magical authority. Like, I am Solomon, I am Adam, I am every magician that has ever come there. Well, you know, you're enter- you're talking into the sorceress genealogy of begats there in some way of like, you know, my right. understanding of this becomes, I incorporate that and I am everything that he was and more. So it's it's just interesting. The, the I don't think I have a lot of Thelemite friends and it they run the gamut. Like, I have people, great talks with you and several other people who are very pro Crowley, but aren't worshiping Crowley. And I had, I know quite a few number of people who seem to be worshiping Crowley uh, specifically or ascribe that they will be like Crowley one day, but that's its own. Everybody's got to have a, a hobby. You got to have you know. goals, I guess. <laughs> like yeah. Meal pattern yeah. baldness and you know, Buddha-like yeah. body. And that, there we go. Taking your own death weeks before your gallery exhibition opening. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Trying to so still- wrap. Neil William Butler Yates' girlfriend. Yeah, Yates may have deserved it, right? Um, yeah, um, sorry, Billy. I don't mean that. I love you and every creature slouching towards Bethlehem. I have a million things I could have gone on about, but I... Uh... That's why we're friends and more rather than just worrying about like, hey, come on to this show and like, like, it's it's great to to <laughs> invite people on and be like, let's see where this goes. Let's go down the rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah. This was this was very much a Josh rabbit hole. It's great. All right. On that, I guess we can wrap up. We can wrap yep. up Al specifically. Yes, but I, I think I just my visual metaphor was just wrapping Al up in wrapping paper. There, I should explain so, my, brown my, paper, my yes, uh, yeah. Christmas tree. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Brown paper packages. wishes every one of us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with that, I guess returning to the feasts of the holy martyrs of Ostia in all of their permutations, in all of the hagiographic blur that means what is it to be a martyr of Ostia. What is it to exclaim Ostia amongst a very conservative Spanish crowd? What is it to be the little the little dick of the little boy? That's not what I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> something something Puerian. Shit, I'll take this over. I'm done. Yeah, by the yeah by the fire in our stones, right? You know, and the and the texts we can read by them by the the angels and and devils and and, and drowned and uh, re unsubmerged saints at our shoulders and the and the voices and and, and the visions and and by the <laughs> and by the juggling and by the aspiration uh, and yeah. yeah and always by the ocean of the dead always pulling fire out of water though yes and still being rooted in the earth even if you have no water inside you you've passed all your water through you like a little boy pissing truly channeling right if we if we're supposed to approach everything like it's an initiatory act of God speaking to us what is it to approach every moment of the day as if we're channeling something or that information is being channeled to turn the world into angelos or to turn every yeah. stone into topaz and everything becomes poppy to dull the pain just enough and sometimes just to fuck with us but yeah shit what if all magic is just you know sleep deprivation is absolutely my drug of choice both of you know that yeah but uh, i'm on four hours yeah. myself so. yeah so pop you know the the milk of the poppy and the tea of the poppy that allows sleep to come for the sleepless yeah 
some permutation of that long poetic breastplate of St. Patrick on this day. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Joshua Adam Sharp of Botanica Mokumba and card-carrying OTO member and rabble-rousing upstart. Thank you for spending some time with us tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. It was absolutely wonderful to hang with y'all. I hope we do it more. Absolutely. Check out website. Oh, what is our official <laughs> Go check out RadioFreedomLotha.com. There's updates coming. We have some stuff in store this year. There is a speakeasy at the end of this month. I will just put that on here. If you don't know what the speakeasies are, go to RadioFreedomLotha.com and find out. And hopefully we'll provide access to former speakeasies on uh, platforms to come. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for, for listening, everyone. What's the opposite of an Irish goodbye where we just keep saying goodbye? This is a Puerto Rican goodbye. <laughs> and I'm told the Midwest has a lot of those as well from friends from the Midwest. <laughs> just, or like or an Arab goodbye too, right? Like where how do Arabs say goodbye? Is like they they say goodbye by telling you starting a new story as you're putting on your shoes to leave and it takes three hours. <laughs> um yeah, this uh every call but yeah, this is the opposite of the Irish goodbye.